Welcome to Up My Hockey with Jason Podolan, where we deconstruct the NHL journey, discuss what it takes to make it, and have a few laughs along the way. I'm your host, Jason Podolan, a 31st overall draft pick who played 41 NHL games, but thought he was destined for a thousand. Learn from my story and those of my guests. This is a hockey podcast about reaching your potential. Hello there and welcome to Up My Hockey or welcome back to Up My Hockey. Whether this is your first episode or whether this is your ninth episode, uh, you are in for a great interview today because my guest is none other than Tom Laidlaw. Now Tom Laidlaw most recently gained some additional fame, if you didn't need any more already, because he was a contestant on Survivor, I think where he was the fifth one voted off. And uh, But back from his hockey careers, which I know Tom, he was a 93rd overall draft pick in 1978, which made him a New York Ranger in the 1980 season. He eventually captained the Rangers, played there for seven years, I think, and then went on to play with the Los Angeles Kings and was assistant captain there during Wayne Gretzky's tenure. So Tom had a great NHL career. He goes over his junior days. He goes over playing university hockey, his first ever pro camp. Um, an amazing story with Phil Esposito. And, uh, and he covers and chronicles a, a, ton of, a ton of great things during his career and, and tells an amazing Wayne Gretzky story as well. Uh, Tom was also an agent after his playing career. It was over for 22 years. Uh, at the beginning of, of his uh agency career he he, he tried to pr- recruit me unsuccessfully unfortunately for me but we talk about that we talk about what it meant to be an agent what he learned from being an agent where he feels the, the place of an agent is today in today's game and we also go over his true grit life brand uh, which is him developing a book now he's got a book coming out uh, part of what he was being on Survivor was about and also just his way of life and he's doing motivational speaking now and we touch on some of his daily habits and some of his philosophies on how to get better and how to keep improving. This is a really great episode, tons of great stories. I could listen to Tom forever. So without further ado, I bring you Tom Laidlaw. All right, sweet. We're live. Uh, welcomed up my hockey, Mr. Tom Laidlaw. Entertaining how it takes two old guys like uh, like an hour to get online, right? <laughs> yeah, to- Tom and I had a little bit of uh, fun here trying to get them all hooked up to this Zoom meeting. But hey, we're here, we're live, and we're and we're rolling. So, Tom and I go way back to my. 17 year old year in the WHL um, and actually prior to that because we actually met in a hotel uh, like lobby bar with my dad when I was about eight or ten when he was playing with the Rangers so it's kind of interesting how we've crossed paths uh, quite a few times and now Tom's been generous enough to to spend some time here today and discuss his career and discuss his life as an agent and what he's up to now and um, I'm more familiar with you Tom as you know the player and as the agent when our paths cross why don't you tell us a little bit about what's going on now with True Grit Life and and your involvement with the alumni. First of all thanks for having me I'm glad you do well too you know it's always great to see guys uh, after the game's done regardless of how their career goes to really uh, have another career, another passion for themselves after, you know, I think a lot of guys get caught in that trap where it's just, you know, hockey versus your life and that's it. So it's glad to see you're doing well. Um, so for me, it's, uh, my son hates when I tell the story. I got two sons and my youngest one, he's 26 now, probably for five years ago or longer, he was always pushing me to brand myself and market myself more. And I thought to myself, well, who really, you know, who cares about my career? You know, I was a defensive defenseman and yes, it was 11 years. I was proud of it and everything, but I didn't view it as too inspirational 
Um, so he, he convinced me and with a little pushing and trying to teach me about hashtags and everything, uh, he got me on Facebook and Instagram. So we had some fun times. Uh, well, we laugh about it now. We weren't laughing about it at the time. And the uh, guts got into starting, you know, I, my, my routine of up, getting up early in the morning, up at 3.30 in the morning. So I'd, get, I'd post a video of myself. You know, it was, it was funny for like months and months. All you'd see on my Instagram page was a, a, a video of the clock on my microwave and me pouring a cup of coffee because I thought, well, that's what people want to see. Well, it built some following and people started to laugh like, and I have no clue what I was doing. So eventually, you know, learned a little bit. Um, started doing more. It was it was interesting how it evolved for me too. We, we started doing a book and more podcasts and started talking about my life and going back to um, uh, when I was a kid with my parents and grandparents growing up on the farm and getting up every day. We had a dairy farm, so it was every day getting up milking the cows. And it start, I started then looking at my career, uh, both as a, as a player and as an agent and any other you know, businesses that I got into and realizing both from mistakes and good things that happened, you know, if I, if something mistake cap, I did something wrong, there's just something didn't work out. I was raised with that mentality where you just keep going, right? There's no, it wasn't even a thought process. You never thought about quitting because on the farm, if something went wrong, you still just had to keep going because, you know, we needed to milk the cows. We need to get the money from the milk and we need to eat. And, um, and then when you had successes, you didn't sit around and gloat about the success. It was just, well, again, you need to milk the cows. You just keep moving forward. And, and that's what I was raised with. So, uh, it was interesting because I really don't think I'm 61 about to turn 62 and I really don't think I thought about those things until probably like 57, 58 years old, but looking back at my life uh, and it really became to me, uh, you know, I started talking about it more and people were getting inspired by it. I think both people who were already living that life of getting up every day and doing all those little things right and nobody recognized it. There was nobody writing any articles about them. So those people recognize, you know, I guess I am doing something great. You know, nobody's talking about it, but because I show up every day, my kids get to go to school. They have the clothes to wear. They can follow their dreams. And for the people that were maybe uh, trying to accomplish something, they then saw that it really wasn't about one big thing. It was about, you know, getting up and completing the next task in front of you. Um, I got tied in with a lot of members of the military, particularly Navy SEALs. And they talk about that a lot too. You know, they, you know, they get stuck in a situation where it's life or death and they get into a battle. It isn't some big heroic moment that gets them out of that. It's just looking straight ahead and say, okay, I've got a target three meters in front of me. I got a target 30 meters in front of me and I got to target 300 meters in front of me. I need to take care of the target three meters in front of me. So it's that same kind of mentality. And it just, you know, um, it just one thing led to another. And, uh, you know, now a lot of people follow when we go up and do speaking engagements it's a lot of fun. I'm very passionate about it, so it's good. No, yeah, good for you. So it, it kind of—it's almost that you know, in your late fifties, you you were able to turn turn back, reflect, and and realize that sort of what makes up Tom Laidlaw is is really this this sort of foundation of of the psychological kind of framework of of getting the little things done. That's kind of been a key cornerstone to your life. Is that is that true? Totally. Yes. You know, it starts. Uh, people laugh about it a little bit. But it starts at three thirty in the morning. I get up every day. And it's got to be every day too. I tell people it's about discipline. And, and I think now I, I have to do it now for the other people, but I, it's better for my life too. It isn't just so other people can see it. It's about, you know, that discipline to get up at 3.30 every day and, and make your bed perfectly. There's a, I think we talked about, it, there's a famous uh, video of this uh, Navy SEAL Admiral, William McRaven, uh, did a speech at a graduating class several years ago. And he gets up there and he's, you know, he's got the white uniform on with all the, badges and ribbons and everything all the awards that he's won 
and he starts making the speech and you think he's going to talk about you know battles and, you know beating the enemy he talks about the 10 things he learned about being a navy, from the navy seals and the first thing he talks about is the importance of getting up making your bed perfect and it's kind of like because he kind of giggles himself when he says it because like that's not what people expect from him but he talked about how that was the foundation that kind of led his you know his day and his life the whole theory is that if you can't do the little things right, then you can't do the big things right. So it starts off first thing in the morning by doing something that nobody else is going to see. Nobody else cares about. This isn't broadcast on national news or whatever. It's, it makes his bed perfect every day. And it kind of leads the rest of his day and the rest of his life to do all the little things right. So um, so that's where I saw that. It was interesting because when I first saw that video, I was like, ah, that's kind of cool. You know, I'll throw the sheets. I'm a typical guy. You know, I'll throw, I'll throw the sheets on top and see what happens. And then I went back and I watched the video again. And I realized I totally missed the point of what he was talking about. It was like, it, yes, it's about the bad, but it's also about your life, about doing things right. So, and then, and again, it was really tied into, you know, the, you know, growing up on the farm that way that, you know, my father and grandfather on the farm, they couldn't afford to buy new tractors, combines and everything all the time. So they had to make sure that they maintained those vehicles. So when we went to do our farm, they didn't just, you know, grab the keys to the tractor and start, you know, run out to the shed there and start farming. It was like going out there, greasing every fitting, checking the oil, checking everything, make sure it's all ready to work. And then you go to work. Um, so that's, it's funny because everything I've done in my life, without even knowing it has really been like that. Like when I got the agent business, when I met you, you know, I, I had no experience, no legal experience. Uh, was not, you know, I had never negotiated contract. I negotiated my contracts a little bit, but uh, I, I, I was just because it had been bred in me so much before I went out there to get to work. I had to, I studied the CBA to understand how that CBA worked. Uh, my first contract negotiation, the general manager was laughing at me because I had so many statistics and everything that I was over prepared. It's <laughs> called Tommy. You get points per minute for like what? What are you doing? But it was, it was just, and it wasn't like some big thing to me. That's just what I was raised with. So I've been so fortunate to, you know, to, you know, have that upbringing and you don't realize it for me. I just didn't realize it until later on in life that that's where it all came from. Awesome. So true grit life then is essentially, you know, you, your brand, your life, and, and is serving as a motivational piece for, for other people in, in all walks of life. So the, the kind of the everyday guy doing, doing, doing the things to, you know, to make his family, uh, you know, better and put a roof over their heads and all that stuff and kind of rewarding, rewarding the hero. Yeah, totally. Yeah, it's that guy to say, listen, you know, and I tell people, listen, it's okay to look in the mirror. And I, I don't mean to actually, you know, if it's a mirror that you're looking in, that's great, but it's, it's more reflecting on your life. So if you're that person that's got a goal or a dream and you're going after something, or you're the, the dad or the mother that gets up every day and, and gets to work, it's important for you to look at yourself and say, Hey, I'm accomplishing something here. I'm doing a good job, right? Cause you need to feel good about yourself, but then, you know, don't look too long. You've got to get back to work. Yeah. More work to do. So, so yeah. No, that's an interesting point because I think in this day and age too, like I'm relatively new to the social media world too. And it sounds like you are as well, but uh, I know like today's youth, it's so hard to, to not get caught up in the fact of like, I'm not good enough because everyone's putting their best moments and, and you see the guy with the 1 million views who can do whatever, right? And you're so far away from being able to do that. And it, you end up having this feeling of inadequacy. And, uh, and I think that's, that's part of one of the issues, I think, even with the athletes that I'm dealing with and talking with is like this inferiority or this not good enough or, or this type of feeling. And when you can shine a light like you're doing on the fact that, hey, you know what, you're doing something well. And, and, and that process of becoming better is something to be, to be proud of and, and to gain confidence with. I think that's a pretty cool message. Yeah, it is. Yeah, like, and you mentioned it to me. It's the process is a huge deal. I, I, I believe in that so much that, uh, 
you know, it, it isn't, you know, everybody wants to win. Everybody wants to be the star, but to get there, you know, you've got that, you've got to go through the process, like you said, to get where you want to get. And that's, to me, the process is pretty glorious. Like, you know, conditioning and fitness and everything for me is huge now. So when I get to the gym in the morning, you know, I'm, I'm it's funny now, you know, the old days we played, it was, you know, like beer for breakfast, beer for lunch, and beer for dinner. It was that mentality. Now I get up in the morning and I, I juice up a beet and ginger and cucumbers and have that, my amino acids, and I'm off to the gym, you know, and it's like, uh, and I, but it's just like my fitness and everything. Like, it's just, it's a whole part of my life. We've talked about the discipline. So it's, uh, it's that, like you said, it's the process of just getting better every day. And I think for me, it, it means even more now because I'm six, like I said, almost 62. Uh, and, and a lot of people are saying it's it, getting to 60s, like, well, I'm going to kind of pack it in, you know, I'm going to retire, move down to Florida, and, you know, pull my pants up to my nipples and play golf all day long. That's <laughs> kind of stuff. And I joke around and say that, but th that mentality, and a lot of my old teammates are like that too. And I'm like, God, there's so much more to do. Uh, and I think like you're doing too, it's, it, you know, by, I think, you know, when you're a professional athlete too, you've accomplished something or people look at you differently, right? That you now have kind of fulfilled a dream that maybe they had. So when they see you doing this kind of stuff, like you're doing with kids or like I'm doing talking to them, it means even more. You can influence people even more, I think, too. Right. Um, I want to touch on that discipline for a second. And uh, just with the aspect of the 3.30 every morning uh, and and the reality of that, like when you're saying that, you're meaning that. Like you're not like, how long has it been since you haven't woken up at 3.30 in the morning? It's been a couple of years now, yeah. It was, my, my son, again, we got going on it. There was a, uh, I might tell the stories, of a kind of famous Navy SEAL now, Jocko Wilnick, who does a lot of motivational speaking, mm -hmm. was getting up, but I really liked the way his attitude about everything. So he was starting at four o'clock and I said to myself, well, I can't just do four o'clock. I've got to, I've got to be better than four o'clock. So it, it was funny. I, you know, I was always up early anyways, as I've gotten older, but uh, so the first couple of weeks, it was great three 30. And then after a while, I was like, geez, what did I get myself into? But, but you know what? It's like now it, it like I get so fired up in the morning now at three 30. It's like the whole, like you mentioned, it's that whole, uh, I just feel better about myself. Like I've got more control of my life because I'm, I'm up and I'm disciplined and the, you know, the diet and the fitness and the, it just starts the whole day off, you know, like the, everything and the making the bed and going, you know, I go for a March at four o'clock and, and March is really a walk, but I say to everybody, you know, try to get the most out of every stride. So again, that's, it kind of goes along with making the bed, do it properly. Uh, when you go for a walk, get the most out of every stride. So it becomes a March and that then that's the rest of your life, you know, get the most out of everything you do. We, uh, was it last week? Yeah, a week ago today, uh, I was involved in a charity. For, I was the MC of an event for the Ronald McDonald House. And part of the event was having uh, my, myself and everybody now from Ronald McDonald House and RBC Bank, who was sponsoring it, go down to uh, New York Stock Exchange and ring the closing bell, which was a big deal, you know, all the history of the building and everything. So uh, I found myself, in a, and I loved it, but it was amazing that, you know, so you've got the gavel and there's a the wooden pad there and everybody's cheering, the bells are going off in the whole bed. I found myself, I just, I wanted to break the mallet. Like it was a goal of mine to hit it so hard. I was going to break the mallet. Cause it was like, I'm living my whole life now that I'm going to live all out. There's a great video. I sh I'll show it to you, but uh, people behind me, like this part of them are going like they're ducking for cover and everything like that. And there was one guy behind me from RBC bank. And he's like, yeah, you know, this is unbelievable. This, he sent me an email after he says, I've never seen something like that before. He says, that was so inspirational. <laughs> so it was, uh, it's just now that that's just the way I lead my life. Did you break it? No, I tried. Actually, it was a guy downstairs. It was funny. He was kind of, he was in charge. 
And he uh, pulled me aside after. He says, you were trying to bake the mallet, weren't you? I said, no, right, I was. Because we had a couple of people that had broken it before, and they reinforced it. And I'm going, oh, God, I wanted to break it so bad. <laughs> oh, that's great. That's funny. Yeah, well, I had uh, I have this Facebook group with with parents and with young athletes that follow me and stuff online. We're just trying to get the message out there. And essentially what you're talking about is like building that discipline and that accountability to you know, align your actions with where you want to get to, you know, a lot of, a lot of young players or, or just people in general have these ideas of goals and dreams of what they want, but maybe not sure how to put the pieces together. And just a fun thing that I did in January with some of the guys that were following me was just doing, it was called the rip some biscuits challenge. So it was shoot 50 bucks a day, every day for 30 days. And they're going to get a t-shirt from me. And so my kids were doing it. And uh, for the goalies out there, cause I have a goalie, I, we made it a wall sit challenge too. So do a five minutes of, of wall sit every day. And, uh, and it was just really wild because that that discipline to do it daily, right? Not just when you want to and not just when you can or when it's easy, but even in the times where you're having a away game or maybe you had homework that night or maybe you have to get up early the next day because you know your day doesn't look very very good, right? Like it, it was, it's, it's a really interesting thing. So a lot of people don't live by that type of discipline or with that type of responsibility and accountability. And even myself, I found I did 23 days and uh, – I didn't do it with my son. Usually that was kind of one of our habit was to do it with my son. And he went to bed early one day. I didn't think of it. And I woke up the next day and I was like, are you kidding me? Like I forgot to do it. So I was like, okay, I got to start it again. So I started it again and I, and actually I got to day 29 and I was on the uh, Leafs alumni tour and was roommates with Ally Afraidy and had the game and everything was different. And again, because I got out of my habit of where I usually was, I didn't do on day 30. So actually I, I haven't completed my own 30 day challenge yet, but it's, it's interesting when we actually put ourselves to do something like that, something as, as simple as a wall sit or as simple as shoot some pucks. Um, you know, it, you got to change your life a little bit. So for you to do that for like two years now, that's super, super impressive. Cause there's had to been a ton of times where you didn't feel like doing it or didn't want to do it or it was inconvenient to do it or whatever the case may be. Well, like you said, like you mentioned about the kids doing everything too. Now you've got people that are following you and counting on you, like your own son, right, yeah. to, to get it done. I think that's a big part of it too, because there's been lots of times. And listen, like I still believe too, and I don't want to condone if kids are watching, you know, going out and drinking beers and alcohol and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, I tell them, but I say, listen, you got to love life too. It isn't just about like, you know, discipline isn't just like depriving yourself of certain things. It's living life all out. So if it's the right time and the right place and you go out and have a couple of adult beverages, then go ahead and do it. But you know, there's, I think it's Herb Brooks had the saying, if you're going to fly with the Eagles at night, just everybody knows Herb Brooks goes to the Olympic team, but he said, if you're going to fly with the Eagles at night, you got to wallow with the pigs in the morning. So in other words, you know, okay, go ahead and have your fun, but don't you miss the work you've got to do in, in the morning. And I think there's been some times when I'm tired, like even last night we had an event in New York City uh, for the Rangers and got in a little late. Uh, it wasn't like a wild night party or something. Just like we were watching, it was a viewing party for the Rangers who played last night. And uh, you know, three, I only had about three hours of sleep, but it's something about it now. I think what it does, and I, I've talked to other people that have kind of done the same thing. When you've got that routine and, and it's tough to do. So like you said, there's lots of days where it's easy to do, but the real test is when it's tougher to do. So when you go out there and it's a tougher thing to do, where maybe other people have quit, maybe it's cold in the morning or it's raining or whatever, and you really don't want to be there, but you go do it anyways. Like the feeling you get when you get it done, it's like, wow, you know, I really accomplished something there. You know, they, it wasn't an easy day to do it. It was a hard day to do it. And I got it done. I just find for me, like, like, like you said, constantly trying to get better at everything you do. And you and I have talked about this a lot. It isn't just getting better physically. Like so much of what we do with everything, sports and life is, is far more mental than physical. So when you push yourself mentally to accomplish something that maybe you wouldn't want to have done, you know, a year ago or two years ago, or that somebody else doesn't want to do. When you finally accomplish that, you go, wow, I'm strong. Like I really, like now the next challenge comes up, 
and it's something that you didn't think you could do and now you accomplish it because now you've kind of given yourself a license to be confident in your ability yeah. to so, no, I love, I absolutely love that because that's one of the things that I, I talk with my clients about. I talk, you know, in my presentations about, and that's when you, when you start identifying yourself as somebody that's going to do the hard stuff, the, the, the stuff that other people don't want to do, whatever that may be. Now there's, there probably is a tangible difference in like whatever it is that you're committing yourself to that's making you better. Like you're probably actually physically seeing a difference, but you have a mental advantage because you think you're doing things that other people don't do. And that's just as real, in my opinion. And and Danny Breer was an was an awesome guest I, I previously had on on the podcast here, and he talked about you know Danny's like a five eight, hundred and sixty five pound guy that played a thousand games in the NHL and was a damn good one when he was there. But he had to make that mental transition of believing that he needed he could be there and believing that he was good enough and big enough. And he said the stuff that he started to work on away from the rink allowed him to sit there and look at a guy who was six two two ten and says he's got nothing on me. Cause I'm more prepared than him. I'm more ready than him. I'm more mentally strong than him. And he had that confidence to go out there and battle and do what he could do. And you know, there's, there's stories like that time and time and time again, when you do commit to that process that you'd get this belief and the sense of confidence and it just changes things about you. And, and getting back to that, I mean, and what a, you know, that rips and biscuits challenge. I mean, those things add up to 50 bucks a day. I mean, how many more pucks did those guys shoot? How much better did the shot get? How much more confident were they when they went on the ice to, to maybe, you know, try that shot that maybe they wouldn't have normally? And I mean, and, and that was the thing that we were getting from the parents and the kids that were involved was like, wow, like they just saw a ton of difference, you know, and it's, and it's not that much in that scenario, right? This is like a five, 10 minute thing, you know, a, a day, like that's not much. Like what if that turned into 20 minutes or 30 minutes and you did it every day? How much bigger of an advantage do you have over your competition, right? Well, and, and you know, it's so great what you're doing too, because it, it yeah, I know you know this already, but it's it's not just the game of hockey, but you're teaching them something about life too, right? Now, mm -hmm. the first day, they may have thought to themselves, oh, geez, am I going to do that 50 bucks a day for 30 days? And thought, wow, that seems like a long time, right? But then you go ahead and get it done. And now they go, I did that. Like, just we're talking, I, I've accomplished something there. So now the next task comes on for these kids. It doesn't have to be hockey. It's schoolwork or a job down the road or helping a neighbor or something like that, you know? I, I just think it makes them so much stronger. I think they get to the point where, you know, now they become those people, you know, boys and girls, men and women that feel like, okay, I'm strong. So instead of, if I get into a competition, I'm going to pull those other people along with me. I'm not going to push them down. I'm strong myself. So I'm going to pull them along. And everybody else now looks at you, like you said before, like this guy's up there, this guy or girl is unbelievable, right? They're in the middle of this competition. They take the time to pull somebody else along. I'm not saying you give up, you know, and let somebody else beat you, but I'm saying you're such a strong person now doing all those things that, you know, you've got that strength to help other people. Uh, and it just, I just think people now look at you totally different. Like, I mean, you now like, wow, who is this guy? Like little things like, you know, in life, you become the strong person that understands the importance of holding a door for somebody. And when you shake somebody's hand, you look them in the eye and you shake, shake the hand hard. Like when I go to, you know, a lot of times you go to graduating classes and colleges and I'll do a speech and then do a Q and A after. And I, it seems like I'm always getting asked, like, how do I make that good first impression? Well, for me, like, and it's changed over time, right? Because that human interaction maybe isn't there enough for them. So when you say to them something simple, like, you know, look somebody right in the eye and shake your hand hard and tell them your name so they remember you, it's it's kind of foreign to them. And for me, being a little older, that was something I was taught on the farm. That was just the way it was. So it's funny when you do that at these these presentations, and when you go to say goodbye, the kids are coming up to you and they're looking you in the eye. They're, they're practicing right away. They're, out, they're excited to try it, right? So right. it seems like that. No, it's, yeah, it's totally, and, and that's the thing. I mean, 
I think there's six or 7,000 people that ever played in the NHL. And, yeah. you know, I was even looking at your draft year and I was doing the research on you, you know, 40% of your draft class played in the NHL. Like yeah. that's 60% of the guys who got drafted never played a game, you know, that's and like how hard is it to even get drafted, right? Yeah. I mean, it's, so it's hard. I mean, it's hard to get there, but I mean, I love supporting dreams. I love getting behind kids and, and, and doing whatever it is that they can do to help align with that. I mean, if they don't get there, they don't get there. But what have they learned along the way? And that's what we're talking about right now, right? These are all massive life skills that just make you better people and uh, going to make you more successful in whatever the heck it is that you're doing, whether it's relationships, family, that's, anything. That's fantastic what you're doing. Seriously, with the coaching part, the way, the way you're doing it too. And no disrespect to any other coaches. There's some fantastic coaches out there, but there's always that, uh, you know, that dilemma. Do we worry more about winning or playing all the players? And, and you know, I've talked about this again, it's, it's you want to win. Yes, you want to win, but it's the process that you go through to get the team good enough to win, right? And that includes getting every player to be a stronger person and a stronger player. Uh, and then now that increases your chances of winning. So that's, yeah. I think, kind of hard on some coaches right now. I mean, it's easier for us because we've lived through it now. And now we're looking back and reflecting on all this stuff. So, uh, but yeah, no question. No, I know. I want to get in. So before we run out of time here, I definitely want to touch on your career and I definitely want to touch on you as an agent because I think that's, those are both uh, topics and, and the agent topic isn't one that we've covered here on, on the podcast yet. So I want to get your perspective on that and how that was and even dig into our, my story with you a little bit because it's relevant to guys that are coming up now and trying to make that decision. But when I was looking back here, so I, I saw that you got drafted at 20 years old, uh, yeah. which. That was a 20 year old draft back then. They didn't have an 18 year old draft back then. Oh, it only was yeah. a 20 year old draft. Yeah. Yeah. Is that why Gretzky was like was in the WHA at that time and stuff, and because he wasn't yeah. in the NHL draft? Because yeah, he because he started when he was like seventeen, right? Yeah, right. so I think he's the three years younger than me. So you know, right. instead of him having to sit around wait for the draft, he went to the WHA. If, okay, so everyone's getting drafted at twenty. I didn't pick up on that, but I. I, uh, I saw that it was a pretty interesting draft class and you went 93rd overall, which is a sixth round at that point, which is, I mean, 93rd is, is relatively high. Sixth round sounds, uh, sounds a little bit later in this day and age with the 31 teams, but I think there was only 18 uh, when you got drafted. Um, one thing I found, I'd like to do a little bit of trivia if I can. I, I found an interesting stat. So do you know who would have scored the most goals out of your draft class? Wow. Was Glenn Anderson in that draft class? No. Nope. Uh, uh, I'm trying to think who else. I would have no idea. That's great. It was actually the first overall, so I'm sure you knew who that was. No, I don't. You don't know who first I, overall I was your year? Well, Bobby I'll, Smith. Bobby Smith. So Bobby well, Smith was first overall. He played 1,000 games. He had like, what did I have it down? He had 357 goals. He almost had 900 points. He had a, he had a good, well, awesome career. Um, but what I thought was interesting, because I always want to point this out, is like the second most goals in that draft was somebody who was drafted after you. Really? I'd have, I would have no idea. It was Paul McLean who went 109th. Oh. So uh, it's just super interesting. And he only played 700 games. So like first overall, you know, 357, 109th overall, 108 people went before him and he had the second most goals, right? And and had a, and had a really strong career. So it's just, you never know, I guess is all I'm saying. And some guys blossom later and who knows yeah. what Paul did. But uh, I find that I find that interesting. Um, and when looking at you, Tom, it was, it was fun. Can you walk me through like, so you – you came from a route at the time that wasn't very popular. And I, I was even looking at the draft class. There was not many guys drafted from university at that time. And, and to be honest with you, the ones that were seemed to be almost the least successful. There was very few guys that got drafted from university that went on to have successful pro careers. Uh, what, uh, what was your choice there and how did that happen for you? That's funny. It's the same, you know, like I talk about my, the mentality growing up with my family and everything. It was like, 
we really did, we weren't educated about what the process was. You know, we didn't have an agent. We didn't have access to any other pro players. So there's no like information like, okay, what should we do to, what's the best route to get to the National Hockey League? I just viewed it that I wanted to play hockey. And I felt like as long as I was playing hockey, I had a, a chance of getting where I wanted to get. But I was uh, on a really good junior B team in my hometown. We actually won the All-Ontario Junior B Championship. And Roger Nielsen was coaching the Peterborough Peets at that time. And he drafted me, uh, yeah, Roger Nielsen drafted me in the second round to the Peterborough Peets. So I went to training camp. Um, I think player I, as a player, I was probably close to being good enough, but I had never been off the farm. I was that naive little kid. I was now in, a, in Peterborough and a new school and new team. You know, I was you know at 16 years old and all these other kids, you know, 17, 18, you, know, you went through playing junior hockey. And, um, and I just, I, I, I remember that, I remember that whole process in that time where I could just tell, I just wasn't ready to, to be there. So eventually they sent me back and I went and played for my junior B team again. And then uh, Northern Michigan University, uh, Rick Conley was our coach. And now they, my first year at college was going to be their first year that they had a hockey program. Mm -hmm. So typically, you know, other places were coming and talking. And I, I really wasn't that highly recruited either. Um, unfortunately, my grades weren't that good. I was, you know, that I was actually a pretty good student, but I was just so concentrated on playing hockey. Um, it, you know, all my fault. I just didn't apply myself at school enough. So, um, the attraction in Northern Michigan was there was going to be four other guys from my junior team that were going to go, and we wouldn't have to sit on the bench and, and play behind the upperclassmen. We were going to play all the time. I actually became a four-year captain there, which uh, I don't know if anybody's ever done before. So it was, you know, a lot of a lot of good things came from it. Um, but it, it really wasn't. I, I'll tell a funny story. I, I can tell it now. It's long enough that it happened. But Don Waddell, who's the president and general manager of the uh, Carolina Hurricanes right now, he and I were roommates, and we were both. So it was my. The, the, it was the year we were going to be drafted. So going into a sophomore year, we decided all on our own. Now, these are two 19-year-old muttheads up here at college. And we decided that we're going to make the brilliant move and go back and go play junior hockey. We didn't consult with our parents. We didn't talk to the coach at college. We contacted the people that got us all set up to go back to Peterborough because that's where I've been drafted. So we drove from Marquette, Michigan over to Sault Ste. Marie. It's like a three-hour drive in Don's green pickup truck. I've got a flight from Sault Ste. Marie down to Toronto. I've got a ride from Toronto to Peterborough. We show up in Peterborough. We get on the ice and skate, go to our billet. Now, again, we've told nobody. We're just there on our own. And I called my parents up like, oh, this is going to be great news. And said, oh, mom and dad, I'm in. And they said, what are you doing? Oh, I'm in Peterborough. I'm playing for the Peets. They said, don't move. We're coming to get you. And they were friends with Don Waddell's parents. They called Don's parents up. My parents came and got Don and I get in the car don't say a word don and i are like like these two naive idiots like what do we do this is a great move by us it's, you know we talked this whole thing through uh go back to my parents house they put us on a flight back to sault ste marie to get don's car and drove back home now we're starting to realize the gravity of what we've done we've been gone for two days not telling the coach where we are and uh, we walked into the coach's office and uh, the three coaches were there they're, they're mad at us because we're mispracticing a little bit we didn't tell anybody what's going on and we walked in and said so where you been well we're in peterborough Play for the Reds. now, and no, that may have made us in Ellisville. I don't know, so long ago, but <laughs> they were like, I'll never forget the look. And again, we were so naive, we just did not understand what we had done and how the impact on everybody. You know, here I was the captain, I think Don was a captain as well, and uh, they were just everybody's mad at us. And we were just these two idiots, like, well, what's the problem? So, uh, we went back up to school as told, and uh. It was actually so good because we, as players, we got to play so much. We had such a big role in the team. Um, and then by our senior year, we were, so we went from starting the program. 
we got we were ranked number one in the country the last half of our senior year. We actually lost the finals to North Dakota, who was ranked number two uh, in the final game. But it was uh, quite a journey. It was, and it, looking back, it was like even the stupid things like that that we did were all learning experiences. And that's what I tell people: I said, "Listen, you are going to make mistakes. You're going to do things that you look back at and go like, what was I thinking about?' But it's it's how you handle it afterwards, you know. So once we realized in that case what we've done, you know, we really ded- dedicated ourselves to the team, did all the things we had to do to get where we wanted to get. Right, right. Yeah, that's hilarious. So, what, what year was that? Like, your what, what, what year when you were there? So, like, so we went there in nineteen seventy six. So that would have been nineteen seventy seven. You know, so what, your you know second year. Then you decided yeah. to jump the yeah. border and go play in <laughs> Peterborough. It was funny too at the end of that year. And you talk about the draft. I think I told you a story the other day. But you know, now as you know, we went through the draft. Is you know, your families come from all over. You had your suit on. You're at the arena. Back then, we didn't go to the draft. I think some of the top guys went to the draft. It was always in the hotel in Toronto. And I was, uh, we hired our dairy farm and our neighbor, one of our friends, I should say, had a horse breeding farm, a standard bred horses. So it was, I was, it's a Saturday when the draft was, and I was helping them out there. I was cleaning the stalls, cleaning the, you know what, out of the stalls. And um, my father had gotten a call from the Rangers at our farmhouse. He called this other farmhouse. They brought me up to that farmhouse, no cell phones or anything back then. And my dad says, well, I got a call from the Rangers. You get drafted in the sixth round. And I said, so what do I do now? He said, get back out there and finish cleaning the stalls out. That was, that was my draft day. So, but it's funny because when you tell the story about who was drafted and everything, the draft was like, I, okay, I don't, you know, there's no internet or whatever. So I don't even, I guess there's a draft. I got drafted or what that means. And that was right. it. You think that, I mean, I, I would assume that's an advantage. I mean, at that time yeah. than it is now is there's so much information and you're watching everything. And there's this, there's all this, there's all this stuff coming at these guys. And there's, there's now they're 17 years old going through this and interviews and the coverage. And it's just like, wow, there's a, there's a lot to deal with now for these guys. And it's no wonder that, um, you know, some guys need some help along the way with it. Well, I think the impression is too that, uh, you know, because you've been drafted, you're going to play in the National Hockey League. And like you showed those numbers there. And I think it's even tougher now. Uh, the numbers are even lower than that. I've heard some people say that every draft year, each team only really gets one or two guys. They may draft seven or eight players. Uh, there's seven rounds now, but they may get extra picks and everything. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, one or two guys will actually become like, you know, long term NHL players. So it is tough for the kids. Yeah, I know for me, it was like, it was tougher in one way because I was, I didn't know what to expect. I was lucky that at the end of my senior year, <clears throat> um, we played in the national championship. The Rangers then signed me and sent me to New Haven, their farm team to play in the playoffs. So that gave me a taste of what the pro hockey was all about. So when I came back to training camp the next year, I knew how, you know, how good a shape I had me and all those things, but it was still that, you know, still a little bit in awe of like, what I mean, I've dreamed all my life to get to the National Hockey League. What's it going to be like in the locker room? You know, Phil Esposito was a great player, was still on the team. In fact, at training camp, my first year, uh, we were playing at our practice rink. And training camps are so much different back then. There were two days, longer camps. The young kids were, you know, in great shape. The old guys didn't do anything all summer long. That was the theory back then. They just they hung up the skates. So they had a long training camp to get themselves in shape. And we were on the ice, you know, two or three days. We were having a scrimmage. And Phil Esposito was carrying the puck through the neutral zone, had his head down. And I was this big farm boy, and I was drafted to, to hit people. And I'll never forget, I stepped up and knocked Phil Esposito right on his ass. And, you know, Phil was this god, you know, for me, watching him on, you know, go back to the 72 series against the Russians. And, you know, he was getting up and chastising all the country because we weren't back as a team enough, you know. So Phil was this larger-than-life guy. I'll never forget. It's just an instinct to hit him because that was what I was supposed to do. I'll never forget looking down at him and he was mad. Oh, my, like I shouldn't, in one way I, I was good. I hit him because that's what they brought me there for. Um, 
the other part was like two days in a training camp. It's Phil Esposito. <laughs> He's like 40 years old or whatever. And uh, so he was, uh, they blew the whistle and he got up and he, he was screaming at me and everything. And I thought to myself, what have I done? I agreed all my life to get to the NHL and here's, you know, I'm not Phil Esposito. He settled down and he came, we're in the locker room after and he comes walking over towards me. And I'm thinking, oh God, here we go. And uh, he says, uh, he says, you know what? I was mad at you. He says, but I've got a lot of respect for you. You want to make this team, don't you? I said, yeah, I do. He says, keep going, keep doing what you're doing. I was like, oh, thank God, you know, but it was like, uh, one of those moments where that might be over. What a testament to him though. What a great story because I mean, that's kind of funny because, and you're pretty, your humility is one of the, one of the most engaging things about you. But I mean, I listened to that story and it's like, either he was smart enough to do that or dumb enough to do that, you know, but, but it was probably, I mean, it was definitely a positive thing, right? Yeah, it was, it was, um, I think again, it goes back to that whole way I was raised that there's a job to do. So my father and grandfather had to get up and milk the cows. They had to bale the hay. They had to get the corn off the field. You know, there's a process to do it. You didn't, nobody cared how you felt. Nobody cared whether you believed uh, that you could do it. It had to get done. So everything in my life was like that. It's like, I, I wanted to play in the NHL. Part of what I was going to do to play in the NHL was hit. Phil Strasier was there to get hit. I had to hit him. That was, that was my job. So there wasn't a whole lot of thought process going into it. It was that I was going to do my job. In fact, I had times, uh, Robbie Fitorik was a, a great teammate of mine, really disciplined guy. And I played with him here in New York. And when I got traded out to LA, he became our coach out in LA. So it must have been like seventh or eighth year in the league, something like that. He came up to me at training camp one time. And I couldn't understand what he was saying. He goes, he says, Tom, you don't have to make the team this year. And I'm thinking to myself, and I was, I looking back, I was kind of happy the way I reacted, but he was saying, Tom, you're, you're an eight year pro. You don't have to play this hard in training camp. You're just here to get ready. But in my mind, well, yeah, I did. I was, I didn't know any other way. And it wasn't like I was doing it with some purpose. It was just, that's all, that's the way I was raised. That's the way I grew up. That's how I, that was my process to play was to, go all out doing my job and that's how i you know that's how i had success no that's that's super cool because i remember kind of not so much in training camp necessarily but when i was on nhl ice against an nhl team and it was i never got past that stars in my eyes kind of scenario right because i had so much respect for those guys that i was that i had watched and it wasn't there was a part of me that really thought i was supposed to be there but it was just like that euphoria kind of like wow and, and am I going to hack this guy or like you mean finish my check as hard as I should probably or any of these things right it was it was uh that was a mental play for me that I that I hadn't quite got comfortable with yet and I, I think it's a real deal because that generation gap you know uh, 10 years isn't, isn't that big right now like if I meet somebody who's 54 years old and I'm 44 like who cares right but when you're 18 and the other guy's 28 that guy seems to me like he's you know elderly right and he's been in the league for 10 years it's like i watched that guy growing up i had a poster of him on my wall right yeah. like it's such a different it, scenario that's totally true. and i think that's a great lesson for life too right i mean that uh you know it's that you know you've got some goal or dream that somebody else has already accomplished and if they're doing it uh there's that tendency to, to almost like be over impressed with them or in awe like you said in awe of them mm. too much and it's i think it's great to have that respect for them but what i learned is you know, that if you've done, especially if you, if you really have done the work to get there, like you, it's important that you've done the work. If you've done that work and you've done everything you need to do to be that same person that he is in that same role, then now again, you give yourself that license to say, yes, I do belong there, but, but it's still there. Yeah. There's no question. I remember the first year in the league, like everything's new, right? I mean, as you know, you're trapped, every city you go to, every experience you have, 
I remember the we and we had a pretty good run on the playoffs. We went to the bunch of the semifinals my rookie year where we beat the Kings in the playoffs and St. Louis Blues and lost to the Islanders. They were on their way to winning their second cup. And I remember when we lost out like the next day, sitting around like and it was just like this huge weight was off my shoulder. It was an incredible feeling how much like stress I was under pressure, like because you're just it's your first year in the league and you're just you're trying to do everything right. You're trying to, you know, play hard, be a good teammate, all those kinds of things. But yeah, it was uh, it was tough. I remember um, you know playing against the Islanders too, and they'd won their cup. So you know, I'm sitting around watching that. Now, next the next season, now I'm playing against those guys. You know, Brian Trotche, Clark Gillies, and Bob Nystrom, John Tonelli, and all those guys. So you gotta you do have to ha have that. You know, and it, it, I just and again, I think it's just that preparation, right? If you prepare yourself, then you again you've given yourself the ability to go do that. But it's still tough. You gotta you gotta push yourself to get past that point. Hundred percent. You and I saw that you did have that one game, regular season game, in the AHL. You played in the playoffs the next year, and then you came up and you told your story about camp. Uh, going into camp, then were you? Did you think you were? Were you expected to make the team? Were you? Were you? Were you surprised to make the team? Or how was that for you going in there? I, I was surprised. You know, I, like it's one of those situations where listen, I felt I was a good enough player, uh, but. I, the key was when I went to the, when I went and uh, played the playoffs a year before at the end of my college year, it was so good for me because I saw, okay, now I've had that moment where I'm, I'm amongst the other NHL guys and realized, okay, I've got to go back during the summer and just get myself in the best shape possible. And I just, I worked hard, man. I, I bet you I like uh, the weightlifting and running hills and all that kinds of stuff. So my conditioning was great. Um, and I think, so that kind of gave me the leg up. So now they'd see me play in the playoffs or they knew I could, you know, you know, play pro hockey. Um, and then they saw me show up at the tramp to camp at training shape in, or excuse me, in great shape. Uh, and I think that was a big key because back then that wasn't that big of a deal. Guys weren't always conditioned as well right. as they should have been. So me showing up to the, well, this guy really wants to play. And then I really, you know, hitting Phyllis Mazzito, you know, getting in a few good scraps, uh, Remember, we, you know, at, at first part of the training camp, I wasn't playing in all the, you know, the NHL games uh, preseason. I was playing in the minor league games. We were playing the Islanders uh, in a preseason game. They're minor, they're, they're young kids. And uh, we were playing a game. And then, never forget, there's this guy, Hector Marini, who was kind of a, a tough guy. And uh, I grabbed him and just, <laughs> just did a pretty good job on him. And uh, he's a tough guy and everything. So we had a pretty good scrap. And it's funny back then, nobody says anything to you. Nobody says like, great job or whatever. But all of a sudden now, the next night, the Rangers, the big club is playing against the Islanders, the big club. So now all of a sudden, I'm in the lineup. And I wasn't due to be in the lineup. So I spanked him around pretty good. Now I'm in the lineup. And I think, okay, obviously, they're, I know what they want from me. Um, and played the Islanders and, you know, had a good, tough game and everything. And that just kept rolling from there and, uh, and eventually made the team. I'll never forget those. So back again, back then, there's no communication. So we've gone through training camp. And Freddie Shiro had pulled myself, Eddie Hospodar, and Chris Katsopoulos, all six foot two guys, 210 pounds. He pulled us aside one time, I think it was practice, and he said, so listen, you guys are all 6'2", 210. Um, you know, I'm not asking you to fight. He says, but you're not going to play the first five minutes of each game. You're not going to play the last five minutes of each game. Uh, but again, I'm not asking you to fight, but what do you think you can do to help this hockey team? <laughs> so it's funny because we played, uh, we played the, uh, the first uh, – we played the first regular season game was in Boston and they had a ton of tough guys. And I was nervous, like just not just because they all the tough guys, but it's your first game in the NHL um, and got through that game. It didn't really do a whole lot. They still hadn't, they still hadn't told me that I'd made the team and they, and they really just did that by telling you, okay, you can get a place to stay. Like they don't right. make some announcement. So next night we're in Toronto 
and I'll, I'll never forget Robert Picard. Uh, I'm skating through center ice now. Maple Leaf Gardens. I grew up right outside of Toronto. Watched all the hockey night in Canada. So here I am. My parents are in the building, and Robert Picard. I, I've got the puck, and Robert Picard goes and butt ends me like, to try to hook me, but it's a butt end, and it's in, right in front of our bench. Our bench jumps up. It's like, what is that? You know, they're outraged. It butt ended and knocked me down. I said, I really can't let that happen to me. I stood up and I just, I, I really didn't even give him a chance. I knocked him out cold at center ice with one punch. Uh, it's at center ice in Maple Leaf Gardens. So Daryl Sittler was this great player back then who I'd watched growing up. All of a sudden, Daryl Sittler, he's the captain. He sees me knock out his teammate. He's coming over after me. And, you know, he's spitting and F this and F that. And uh, I asked the guy, it was one of those moments, I looked at Daryl Sittler, like I wanted to get his autograph. Like I never <laughs> put the, the thought in my head. I just knocked this guy out. Daryl Sittler, can I get your autograph, Mr. Sittler? And I, I had to like snap myself, you know, and realize what's going on. And now all of a sudden I'm in an FU fight with Daryl Sittler at center ice and maybe we've guards. And this is unbelievable. Uh, my poor mother, after the game, she was devastated because here's her son, the first pro game she sees in play. She knocks some, out, some poor guy out at center ice. Next day in the newspapers, they're calling for me to be suspended. Local boy playing for the Rangers should be suspended and all this kind of stuff. But the great thing was right after the game, Freddie Shiro come over to me and says, okay, Tom, you can get a place to stay. So I made the team. Isn't that interesting, eh? Like everyone finds their way. What, uh, yeah. what a great way. What a great way. I love that story. Can I get your autograph, Mr. Yeah. Sittler? <laughs> Seriously, it's like, you know, like you're, I'm sure you went through it too with some moments when you're on the ice, right? Like it's yeah. almost like you can't believe, like you mentioned it before, that I watched this guy play so many games and now I'm on the ice and he's coming after me. So it's funny. Yeah, no, that's wild. And your, your rookie year, you mean you played 80 games. It turned out to be your best year statistically. Yeah. I know you, I know you weren't, um, you know, you yourself said you weren't there to score goals and get points and run the power play. But I mean, it was your best year statistically as far as points were concerned. And uh, and then that team, which you touched on already, was actually below 500, I thought was interesting and got to the third round that first yeah. year. And, and then uh, I don't think you got back to the third round until maybe your sixth or seventh year. So that was a pretty cool way to start and, and, and to get in there. Was there anybody that you remember from that team that kind of, you know, was a role model or a mentor to you or took you under your wing specifically? Yes. Uh, without question, there's a, there's a few guys, but uh, uh, Carol Vadney, who we lost a few years ago, he passed away, uh, had, a, had a great career, played for the uh, California Golden Seals, like he was, played for the Boston Bruins many years and finished his career with the Rangers. So I was coming in, kind of one of the guys taking his job. I mean, he knew his career was coming to an end, but um, I was one of the guys going to take his job. Um, but he was incredible to me. I will never forget it. And it's, it meant so much to me when I helped other, helped other kids come along as they played. But like, like I became like his project. He saw something in me believing that I could play and he was going to do everything he could. It's like he was, I was his mission to, you know, try to, you know, get me to be the best player possible. Like I remember he had the French accent and everything and the, the stick rep from Sherwood would come in and he'd come over to me and, and I had a skinnier little blade and he would, you know, go to the stick rep. He says, Tommy, this is what we want. We want the nice big blade here so you can knock this puck down and everything. I said, okay, you tell me to do it. We played a game. The funny thing is we played a game against the Islanders one time and, and Vad was coaching at that point. Um, and uh, Clark Gillies, you know, is this big monster, you know. And when Clark Gillies got mad at you, it's like he had this one eyebrow going across the top of his head. You know, he'd look at you like this. And, you know, I had seen him so many fights against Terry O'Reilly and everything. And uh, you know, Vad says to me before the game, it's in Long Island, he says, Tommy, you go to the front of the net with that Gillies and the whistle blow, you punch him right in the chest. I says, okay, Vad, you, Vad tells me to do it, I'm doing it. So we go to the front of the net, whistle blows, Gillies stand there, and I 
punch him in the chest like that. He looks at me and goes, what do you want? And I look over at Vat and it's like, okay, what do I do now? You know, this is Clark Gilly's shoulders. I'm not, I'm not fighting like some uh, middleweight here or whatever. So those kind of things. Hey, he was just fantastic to me. And uh, we had funny, wow, kind of, we had another moment. Uh, we were playing a game in Winnipeg. And it was one of those times where just everything was going wrong. And, you know, every time he stepped on the ice, pucks going to the net. And Vat was really trying to be like, and he was not trying, he was being a great teacher. So he, he saw when pucks went in our net, and that is an opportunity now to try to teach kids, right? A mistake has been made. What do we do to correct it? But it was like, like, seriously, it was off. Like it was, it was an awful night. So I'd gone on the ice, a, puck, a, a goal had been scored against us. And Vad was now talking to whoever was on the ice as defenseman when that goal went in. So when I went on the ice, another goal had gone in. So Vad didn't see what had happened because he was talking. So he comes to me very, like very respectful. He was fine. And he was calm, you know, the whole bit. He's just, uh, but at this point, you're just so frustrated. And he says, Tommy, how did the, or uh, what happened out there? And I was mad. And I wasn't mad at him, but I'm just mad at the situation. I said, the puck went in the effing net. And I, it came out as so disrespectful towards him. I did not mean it that way. I was just frustrated and everything. And I saw the look in his face, like he was devastated because here Tom Layla was who had, uh, Carol Vanden had given everything to. Like he was going out of his way to treat me great. And I just, I devastated him, you know, and you could see it in his face. I'd really hurt him personally. So after the game, um, I went to apologize to him and he was in tears. And it was just, it was a worse feeling because this guy had done so much for me, but it ended up being a great moment because it, it really gave me, maybe I wouldn't have done it before. It gave me an opportunity to really express to him how much he'd done for me and how much it meant. Like, I felt like I needed to tell him at that moment that yeah. I appreciate what he'd done for me. Um, so, so I mean, it, and it turned out okay. And, you know, Carol, or, uh, Ron Gresham was sitting beside me and he and I remained friends. We live close. We do a lot of stuff together with the Rangers alumni and we still, we kind of chuckle about it now because of how it all turned out. But, you know, like, right. I, I, like the moment it came out of my mouth was like, oh my God, what did I know? We well, always, that's, <laughs> that's one of those cases where, you know, you're going to make mistakes and I, that, you know, I'm sure you do the same thing in life. You're going to make mistakes. You're not going to be perfect. It's what you do about it afterwards too. Yeah. Oh yeah, I mean that that ability to say sorry or apologize is is that's a lost art. I think people don't want ever to. I mean that's accountability essentially, right? I mean accountability is a big one, and say hey man, I screwed up. Uh, I think you get more respect that way. But I think you already touched on it too. So so here's this guy that was this great mentor for you, and who knows really at the end of the day, like how much that really impacted you and your career and the length of it. And even that rookie year, right. It's so hard to put a, a number on that or an analytic on that, but there, I mean, there's lots of power in that. And it sounds like because you had that experience, you were then able to understand the power of that and help others throughout your career as well. Do you think that had an impact? Oh, totally. hundred percent. You know, I think I, I find myself more now, whether it's young kids or even in the agent business, uh, understanding how important it is that you tell somebody, um, and even in personal relationships, you tell somebody how you feel about it. And that wasn't always easy. You know, I grew up on that farm life, the old farm life where people didn't sit around and they weren't all huggy and telling each other, uh, apologize, weren't telling each other how they, you know, what their feelings were. Um, and, you know, when I, like things like when I had my son, you know, I, I realized, man, like how important it was for me to tell him I love them every day. So growing up as kids, they, they heard that from me all the time. Uh, I got divorced from their mother when, when they were young, but I ended up, it's awful to say this way, but divorce ended up being one of the best things that ever happened to my relationship with my boys because, you know, I, I wanted to make sure that I was, you know, not just there for them, but like, not act, like actively. And they knew every day, you know, but not just by what I said, but my actions, how much I love them. And my relationship with them now is just like, is incredible because they, we did things like we we're younger. We, you know, we, we had a motor home. We, you know, 
drive all over Canada and go down to Florida and all kinds of stuff. And they still talk about those days. In fact, my son, the oldest son, I dug out a picture were you know bad parenting they were standing up on top of the motorhome at one point we weren't moving but they're standing up <laughs> on top of the motorhome at Niagara Falls and you know like little kids and like, I don't know what where it came from but it was but it was yeah so things like that like I just look back you know obviously I'm proud of myself that I accomplished things and the goals but like you mentioned like I had so many people that uh, you know came into my life at the right time when it was junior coaches college coaches you know Carol Vadney you know, Herb Brooks, when he coached me for four years, starting my second year, you know, the, the things they taught me, the things they like, pushed me to be better. I had a junior B coach, Rick Hay, who was just fantastic with me, played for the Bramley Blues, but I hated him sometimes. Like we would do, every, I say every Wednesday, we would do breakouts at, at practice. And here I was, this young kid, like 15 years old, and this team junior B kids, so up to 20 years old. And, you know, you want to fit in, you don't want to be singled out, all those things that are happening. And from the time we, it, it felt like to me anyways, from the time we started doing our breakout drills to the time it ended, he was yelling at me the whole time. <laughs> that probably wasn't, wasn't accurate, but he wanted me, like he knew I could play. One of the things I need to work on that needed to be an automatic for me was to get back as quick as possible, get the puck, know my options, move the puck out. That was a simple play. And he was going to, and I was kind of that little bit lazy kid with a lollygag going back and he would be on me. And it just, I, I look back at that. And not just the fact that he taught me the breakouts, but the whole attitude about life. Go do it hard. Like skate back as hard as you can. Make sure you're looking. Like do it the same thing about making your bed. Do it the right way. So I had so many people in my life that were like that, that taught me that kind of stuff. And again, it's one of those deals you don't realize until later on in life how lucky you were to have well, the power of a good coach and then also the, you know, the, the power of maybe a not so good coach too, you know, yeah. I mean, you're, you're going to come across both. And when I was, when I was doing my research, Tom, it's amazing. Like we are from different eras, but like the touch points of you with coaches and the touch points with me, like there's tons of overlap. Like Roger Nielsen was with Florida and I got drafted with them and yeah. I was in Peterborough for one of our first training camps. Mike Murphy was with you and it was my coach in Toronto. Brian Maxwell's assistant coach for you in LA who yeah. I hadn't spoken for two years. Yeah. Um, you know, like it's it's kind of crazy, actually. And and I wanted to talk with you a, a bit about the coaches because Herb Brooks is a legend, and a lot of these kids now um, will watch that movie Miracle on Ice, and and, and the way Herb is portrayed in that, he he almost seems like a guru. Well, not yeah. almost; he is portrayed as that. Uh, do you did you spent geez three or four seasons with him? I think uh, was was he what he's portrayed to be in your mind or, or how was your yeah. experience with him? I, I think he, you know, in the movie Miracle, when you watch him, he, I think he's a little bit uh, tougher on uh, those kids. I think it was a unique situation. It was a one-year deal. I think he, uh, but man, so my freshman rookie year in the NHL, we, like you said, we'd gone to the semifinals, but Fritz Shiro had gotten fired halfway through the year. And Craig Patrick, who had been with Herb on the Olympic team, and because of his background with the Rangers, his family background, was there and, and they had fired everybody, the general manager. And so Craig took over the whole thing, coaching, general manager, everything. And then brought in her, what, you know, so my second year in the league would be Herbs. And like you said, I had a pretty good, you know, I had six goals, 25 assists, something like that. So I had a pretty good rookie year and we'd done well. Uh, but a few things happened. Herb came in and we had a big, tough physical team my, my rookie year. Herb didn't want that. He wanted that skating team. Brought in guys like Mark Pavlich, Rob McClanahan, got guys out of the team like, you know, Chris Katsopoulos or tougher players. But it is amazing because I think back, and I didn't think much about it at the time. So here a team that's gone to the semifinals, now a new coach comes in and revamps the whole team, changes the style we play, everything much more of a skating game. But when he walked into the room, I'll never forget the, the first practice, or first game, first meeting we had with him. It, he, there was no question 
in anybody's mind. He was the boss. He knew exactly what the schedule was for the whole year, how we were going to play, what role each player had on that team. There's no question. I remember that first meeting because you know, I'm thinking like, what's going on here? We just got to the semifinals. Now you're changing everything. But with her, no, he was like so, like, you know, you talk about having that confidence. And he must have been in awe. I mean, he wanted to coach in the National Hockey League like everybody else does. He, that's in the coaching profession here is these veteran NHL players are on the team. And he's cutting these players, sending them home and everything because he knew what he wanted. Like he said in the movie, it's not about the right players. and It's not about the best players. It's about the right players. And he knew exactly what he wanted. Uh, so there's no question in anybody's mind, Herb was right. And that's always, well, I shouldn't say always, as time's gone on, I think it's impressed me even more and like uh, shown me that, you know, if you're going to go do something, you know, don't go do it halfway because everybody then that you encounter is going to think, well, he's not really into it. He's like, he's not sure of himself. He's not confident of himself. He's not doing the work he needs to do. With Herb, there was no question. It, it was almost to the point of arrogance that he was the boss and that was it. But he, so before our first game, the day before uh, we were at practice and he, at the end of practice, he'd gotten everybody together at center ice and her love to make speeches. So he's going around to all the players, you know, Barry Beck, you know, you're a captain, you're a leader, you're a power play, penalty killer, Ron Gresher, you're a power play guy, all that. Gone through everybody, you know, analyzing, you know, what the expectations were. And he got to me. Um, and he says, Laidla, if you get the puck, give it to somebody else. You're not supposed to have it. And the guy, the guy started dying laughing, and I was devastated. I go, what? Like, I'm feeling good about myself. I had this great rookie year, you know. I'm, I'm going to get better. I'm going to score 10 or six goals last year. I'm going to get 10 this year, you know. And uh, I found out later on, it didn't seem like a time, but, like, he really respected me. It's the strangest thing, but he thought I was tough enough mentally to handle it. Like, he talked to my junior coach and college coach and all those guys. And and first of all, it was great advice because I ended up, that's really was the role I should be in. It doesn't mean I, I wasn't going to be an effective player. It's just that I should be that good defensive player. Um, but he, and he, I guess he just like, and it worked too, but he had this thing where like he would say something like that. And the theory was that everybody else kind of rally around the guy that he was picking on. Like it it'd make the team unity even better. Like he didn't care if they liked him or not. He wanted the team to be tight. And that's really what happened because after it happened, the guys were all like laughing and joking, crowding around me, making fun of me the whole bit, which was fine. I was kind of like the assistant captain kind of guy, but that, that really was her. Like her really knew each player. Like any, like, like for me, like literally, like it could be the end of a game where you're bleeding, you're playing the Islanders in a big game. You're up two to one. Uh, you know, you're dehydrated. You've lost seven or eight pounds of water weight, you know, from this, this hot night in the Madison square garden. He would just come down to the end of the bench and he wouldn't say to me, like, Tommy, you okay? Can you go? He would just come down and literally kick me in the rear end and go, get the F out there. And he knew that's kind of what I wanted. Like, I didn't want to be coddled or whatever. In fact, like, it, it gave me more inspiration to say, even if I wasn't at 100%, he still wanted me there. So it, like, it gave me that power to say, wow, he, I, I'm important to him. My coach really counts on me. He doesn't care if I'm healthy or not. He doesn't care if I'm ready to go. Just get out there. I want you out there. Right. So I, I, you know, you'd be dead tired or whatever. I'll never forget the feeling. Like once he'd do that, like I would put the hand up on the boards and jump over the boards like I was flying. I was just so fired up to go out there and play in, in big moments like that. So he was good. He really knew his stuff. 
No, that's great. And he's given you, like you said, he's that's a vote of confidence. There's, I think there's a few ways we can get confidence. One is the stuff we're talking about is being committed to a process. Another one is actually getting results on the ice. You know, like you've proved to yourself you can do this. The other one is like that environment, that surrounding cast. Like when someone shows confidence in you and maybe you don't quite have it or maybe you're a little bit down or tired, like that, that's a real thing too. And it's like, oh, this guy believes me or this this, I, this person needs me right now and they want me and 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 that can that can lead to greater results too. So that's great that he showed that to you and, and that you were able to respond to it. What, what, how old were you or what year in the league did you get a letter on your chest? Jeez, it was, uh, might've been my second or third year in the league, obviously when Herb was coaching. Uh, uh, so I, yeah, it must've been my second year in the league. I got an assistant captain. Second uh, year in the league. Yeah. Because wow. we, because again, we'd had a lot of veteran guys like Steve Vickers and Walt Kachuk and Carol Vadley, like I mentioned, and you know he'd shipped a lot of those guys out and brought in younger guys like it's the Robbie McClanahan's and the Mark Pavliches, uh, Dave Silk, guys like that. Uh, so I, I, I definitely by the third year it could have been the second year. I wore the A, excuse me, I wore the C for a little bit too. Very back was our captain. And he got hurt. We had Anders Hedberg was on our team, great guy, and. Um, the way Herb tells it anyways, that uh, he went when Barry got hurt and was going to be gone for like half a season. He went to Anders and said, uh, Anders, I want you to be captain. And, and Anders supposedly said to him, this Herb came back and told me this, but said that uh, he said, no, I think the guys would rather have Tom be the captain. So I was captain for, for half the season. Barry was there. And, but it was funny the way Herb would say it. Uh, like he wouldn't come back like as a compliment. He'd go, uh, he, he come back and says, uh, all right, you're captain. I, I told Anders he should be, but he thinks you should be, so you're captain. That's the way Herb would talk to me, you know? Like, he wouldn't, he wouldn't be – like, he's like, not going to do some big speech, like, oh, you're the greatest, Tom, or whatever. It's just, uh, <laughs> uh, nobody else wants to kind of tell so you're captain. Right. What do you – I mean, because you, you – obviously, you were recognized at that, and especially at such a young age. I mean, what a testament to either the way you played or your character or, you know, your natural leadership ability. What what would you describe as being a good leader in that in that, in that that room or how, how did you go about your business well you know it's funny I, I actually did a podcast on this one time too and it's funny to look back at uh i think there's different levels of leadership i think there's that that captain guy like the mark messier or in our case the barry beck who um like carries himself with a certain or like almost i don't want to say like above everybody else like he's separated he's obviously not like you know but it, it, like mark messier was looked at like like you know, he's like God, he's a godlike figure, right? But late in his career, like being his leadership abilities and everything. But it was also the way he played too, and the way he carried himself. So there's those kind of leaders. Um, and I guess for you know, like I said, for you know, some of the time I, I could have been that. But there's also that second tier guy. That's so he's got to he kind of got to suck it up a little bit. He's also a leader, but he knows he's not going to be looked at as the leader. He's going to be that assistant captain, and he's going to. So Mark Messier walks in the room or Barry Beck walks in the room and he says, okay, this is the way things are going to be. And then he walks out of the room. So it's then my job as the assistant captain to make sure that what Barry Beck says is going to happen is going to happen. Even if I don't totally believe in it, because there's different ways, you know, there's always, you know, different ways to run a company, different ways to, uh, in a family setting, whatever, but somebody has got to be saying, okay, this is the way we're going to do things. So when that leader comes in and says that, then it's those other people underneath him. They says, okay, if we don't make this happen now, then he loses some of his leadership ability because people aren't following through with what he says. So it's my job. It's incumbent on me to make sure, again, even if I don't totally believe in it, it's my job to make sure those things happen. I think right. that's the role I, I felt really comfortable in that, um, 
that you know listen, I, you love being a captain in fact when Barry Beck was out people would come to me and say like why don't you play like this all the time because I think I took on more of a role but I think to be that effective you know assistant captain you've got to let the guy if Barry Beck is the captain you have to let him be the captain you can't be fighting for that leadership role it's got to be one guy right I think that's really I, I felt like that was really something that I I felt pretty comfortable at Awesome. I was looking at your, I mean, considering that you played the one with the one game, the AHL, you didn't play in the minors again till like the very, very end. You played like three games at the end, the IHL or something. So, I mean, obviously there's ups and downs in, in any career and I'm sure you, you experienced, you know, adversity, let's call it uh, a challenge at some point. Do you remember what any of those would be? I mean, I looked at your stat line and I know it's not all about stats, but you went one entire season without scoring a goal. Yeah, um, yeah. Like, would, would that be something that would have bothered you at all or that got on your mind or was that just not really expected of you and it was okay? Yeah. Yeah. That's a fantastic question. I, I, if I look back at something in my career, you know, you dream so much about accomplishing a goal. My goal was to play in the national hockey league. Uh, for me then I, I feel like, okay, I accomplished that goal. And then like probably for like first five years, I was still driven to get better and better and better and be that good assistant captain. I think that at some point I, I and I, I played through tons of injuries too, you know, like torn triceps and lots of guys do ankle injuries, knee injuries. And my first uh, five years in the league, I missed two games, one at the end of my second year, one at the end of my fourth year, I think it was, both because Herb Brooks wanted to rest me going to the playoffs. So I never missed a game from injuries. Finally, my fifth year, I ruptured my spleen and missed, I think, 18 games. They took my spleen out. I came back and played. I think if anything, then after that, it seemed like, like I was getting hurt. I, I didn't feel like I was continuing to get better and better. Then I got traded to Los Angeles, kind of got a second wind, you know, Wayne Gretzky got traded there. We became this really, you know, high powered team. I was, I was just a captain there as well. So it felt good. But I think if anything, I kind of, I hate to say it this way, I almost like took it for granted almost, you know, that in fact I was playing in the NHL. You know, I, I tell the story all the time, too, that, you know, the only really comparison between Wayne Gretzky and I is that we both had dreams and we both accomplished dreams. But the difference was that my dream was to play in the NHL. Wayne Gretzky's dream was to be the best player that ever played in the NHL. And that really is one of the things I thought that separated him from everybody else. There's lots of guys like me. And, and again, I'm very proud of, and I think anybody should be, that you accomplish some goal. So you shouldn't look down at yourself. But again, like I, I know now in my life that I don't want to just accept being like as good as I am today. I want to be better tomorrow. Right? It's getting better all the time. You know, just don't accept. Like people look at me now, like, "Wow, Tom's great. You're an agent all that time. You're on Survivor. You're in great shape. Your diet so you nailed down. Your discipline. That's great." You know, I can say, "Well, yeah, people will admire, admire me and respect me." But I want to. I want to wake up tomorrow morning and get you know lift more weight in the gym and and learn mm -hmm. more about my diet and get better mm -hmm. at everything I do. Right. So. Right. No, that's a great way. That's a great approach. Great philosophy. I, I recently interviewed, interviewed Trevor Latowski. You probably remember that name. He's now head coach of the Winter Spitfires. And he was talking about his first year pro, which was in the AHL. And he was a later round draft pick, seventh kind of over uh, seventh rounder and had a really good junior career, but you know, was, a, was, you know, trying to make an NHL team that was loaded in Phoenix. And he was sent down to the minors who was also loaded. And he said he was like in a third kind of fourth line role when he got out there and he never scored for his first 21 pro games. And he, I think the words he used was like, he thought he like legitimately might never score another goal. Like that's where it, where it got to with him. And, and that year was just a real trying year for him to get through that battle, find his way in the lineup. And, and really the whole thing was, 
kind of a test to see what what he was made of and and you know he got through and obviously had an unbelievably successful career and and some of those things hit guys uh harder you know obviously he he was a point guy and you never weren't necessarily a point guy but you know going a whole year without a goal you must have been a few times you were like geez man like is this thing ever going to go in actually i remember that period of time because it it was like halfway through the the last half of the year before and the last the first half of the next year i didn't score either so it really went like 120 games without me scoring a goal, something in that range. And and that's part, you know, I'll, I'll never forget this too. It's interesting you bring that up because I remember making comments. I would almost, I guess I'd make light of it almost because it was frustrating. I'd say, well, I'm just not even going to shoot on net anymore. I was playing with the Kings. And I remember thinking back to us, I think if I'm a teammate, you know, I know I'm not an offensive player, but I'm letting my teammate down with that attitude. And I, and I wasn't happy about that. Like, I, I got to tell you, like at the end of my career, like getting injuries and everything and, and that kind of stuff happening to me, this is one thing I changed too. Like, I don't think I handled the end of my career as well as I would have liked to looking back at it either. I got really frustrated, you know, not scoring goals, getting injured all the time. But just, I think the way I looked at myself, the way my, my teammates looked at me, like when I started my career, so I was that, I was a guy that Herb Brooks would pick on. I was a guy that would play with every injury. I was a guy that showed up every game. I would win players player awards that were voted on by your teammates. It's like kind of that unsung hero kind of guy. And then at the end of my career, I was this guy that could barely stay in the lineup. And I was this guy that, you know, didn't score for 120 games. So I wasn't, even though it wasn't my job, I wasn't contributing to the team that I wanted to. And that was frustrating because my whole life, the team was everything. I was never, uh, you know, and it's a true good life thing. I was never good enough. Like I was never the best player on any team that I ever played on growing up as a kid. You know, I know a lot of the kids think, well, you're the best team in Pee Wee, the best player in Bantam and all that stuff. I never was. It was just, I just always showed up every day and was, you know, a, a part of the team. Uh, so all of a sudden now, you know, at the end of my career, I wasn't contributing, you know, I, in, in a lot of other ways, just to score goals. And that was really frustrating, you know, like the back injury. And again, you know, part of what made me so successful was, I guess you call it almost stubbornness that, you know, I wasn't going to get on the training table no matter what. You know, if if I, you know, I had, I had this torn tricep one time. When the doctor looked at it, I played for a couple of weeks with it, and my tricep was rolled up in a ball, and I I just kept playing. And they didn't even went to the doctor. The trainer knew and everything, but we said let's just not say, let's just keep playing. The doctor came in one time, Madison Square Garden, and uh, looked at my arm. He saw this lump in the back of my arm. So he grabbed me. He says, "What are you doing? You got a torn tricep." Uh, you know, but that was like I was proud of that. Like I would play through anything. Uh, and then at the end of my career, not being that guy that could play through everything, that was really frustrating. And uh, I remember we had a great coach, Rick Wilson. I uh, was an assistant coach in LA. And I think he's, I can't remember, he, is he down in Dallas now? Whatever, great guy. Played for a number of years. Uh, played for a lot for Montreal. And he had a bad back. And he was a great guy. And he was the same kind of player that I was. So we would skate around before practice in LA. And uh, he, he knew exactly what I was going through because he was doing the same thing. Like when I hurt my back, instead of, training properly to you know fix like you know working on core stretching all that kind of stuff i go nope i'm not that's it i'm not getting on the training table I, this is the way i've this is my process this is what i've done for my whole career i'm not changing it and that's like kind of like where i was going with this was so the stubbornness that got me into the league to play through every injury and not getting on the training table ultimately hurt me at the end of my career because i wouldn't adapt you know, I see these great players now, like Zidane O'Chair, for example, training, you know, changing his training methods as he gets older so that he can still play in the NHL. I think, oh, Tom, like that's, you know. So again, I'm, I'm proud of myself that I had that drive and stubbornness to follow my process. But at some point, you got to be able to look in the mirror and say, okay, 
that's great. You've got your process. You've got your code that you live by. But, you know, you need to adjust things here. You know, you're not 21 anymore. You're now 31. You know, you can't play through every injury like you did back then. Right. So that, that's one thing I look back at. It was a great learning lesson and stuff to look at. Sure. I talk about that too, staying curious, right? I think that's important because yeah. I think curiosity keeps you humble too. And, and I mean, there's always new things and, and who knows, right? What, if you ask the right question, what you're going to find out. Yeah that uh, we, we are so interestingly tied in so many ways. Like you talk about your tricep. I've never met anybody who else has torn their tricep, but I, yeah. it, it, the summer before I went to Penticton Panthers camp where I ended up making the team, Paul Carrillo was there. We were on the back of a tube on the lake. Uh, Jimmy rigged this stupid thing and we were trying to stand up on it. And I fell off thinking I was just going to land in the water, but the, two, the thing wrapped around underneath my arm, ripped me out of the water as the boat was going. Turns out I ripped a head off one of my triceps. So like for everyone listening, a tricep has three different muscles and completely lost one of them. Same thing, bowled up to this day. It looks like I'm a bodybuilder with my triceps and end up going to camp in Penticton, playing with it like that. And by the time a doctor looked at it, they said there was really nothing they could do. Like it was, it was so atrophied that you could have to surgically attach it. So I still only have two heads on my tricep, but um, it, was it was painful, too, right? Oh, I mean, damn it, straight it was. It yeah, was like every time you're pushing your arm out, trying to push somebody away, it's like somebody's sticking a knife in your arm. Yeah, but yeah, it's no, so funny. There. Like, right, you think it back with those things, how you just, like, I'm sucking it up. I'm not, I'm not letting anybody know. Well, and what else was, I mean, that was the thing. I, I wanted to make that hockey team in, in my scenario. I mean, I was 15 years old playing against 20 year olds. Paul Curry was there, it was this big thing. And either I went to camp or I didn't. And I wasn't making the team if I didn't go to camp. So off, off you go and you do what you need to do. Some, let me ask you your opinion. So, some people, uh, do you think people are born with the ability to fight through things like that? Is it the environment they're in? Do you think they learn that or all the above? Yeah, great question. I mean, I don't know. I, I I wonder about pain tolerance. I've wondered about that before. Like what feels like what I feel it would be the same thing what somebody else feels. You I mean, I, I don't know how you would ever regulate that or, or no. Um, I think it's being aligned and really understanding where it is you want to get to. You know, yeah. I, I think I think that's a big one because when you do have when you do have a big dream and a big drive, like you're willing to overcome more things, just plain and simple, right? And then also I think with your scenario, if you're coming from an environment where that's expected and is a standard, I think you have another just uh, environmental advantage because you've been exposed to that. So I think that it probably is a compound compounding of factors, right? Uh, I, I agree. I agree totally. I, like I think, yeah, you, you're growing up as a as a kid. You know, you see people around you that are doing that. Uh, yeah, because you know, I, I just I, I got to the point where like fighting through things like that actually made me stronger. I think we touched on this before where it actually yeah. made me stronger because I fought through something right now. I, so, and I've done it before. So you face something new. I do another podcast with a former Navy SEAL. And he talks about that too, where, you know, they, they, they would train themselves to failure. So they go on like a six month deployment and they train for 18 months to train to get ready for the six months. And during that training period, they train themselves. So nothing they would face, in the actual deployment we would be as bad as their training is so they train themselves to failure so they know they can survive anything so it's right. amazing you know talk like that that they, they how you can train your mind like yeah. I, I think that you and i believe in that stuff a lot where you know how the ability to train your mind to do things that you didn't ever think you could do mentally and physically right david you must have heard of david goggins i would assume yeah and boy he's a he's a testament to that and I, I think there's a bit of an innate thing like i remember being we had this big long hill it was probably a mile long and i don't know maybe 25 degree grade kind of thing like it was a big hill coming home from school and i was in elementary school and i remember going up that hill and country road right there's no one around there's no one watching and I just remember every day driving that bike up that hill that this damn hill wasn't going to beat me. Yeah. You know, cool. like, 
and there would be guys that I'd go with like buddies that would come home and they'd get off their bike. And I don't know if I was, I don't think I was physically superior, but I was just like, I'm, this hill's not beating me, right? Like I'm not going to get beat by this hill. And I've, I've sort of had that mentality with stuff kind of, you know, just growing up with whatever that I'm a guy that's going to not get beat by whatever it is. And uh, I don't know where that comes from, but I, you know, I think that there is, as far as parents listening to this, I know with my boys right now that like, you can talk about standards and what is the standard for you? What is your personal identity? And like, and that can change. You can raise the bar for yourself. And as, as you do that, my gosh, like, you know, you start, you start scratching into that potential that everyone talks about. And I think that's, you raised a great point there. I think as a parent, as a coach, as a teacher, as a leader of young people, um, the example you set for those kids, like you're setting for your kids. And I think like I set for mine, uh, my, my oldest son wasn't a great natural athlete. He was a goalie when he played. And when he, so we played, I coached him all the time, youth hockey. And then we got to high school, there was already uh, five kids that were goaltenders on the team. You know, they carry lots of players. So he was never going to be, or you know, maybe in his senior year, he'd become a goaltender. So uh, he wanted to be a skater. And he was just not a naturally good skater. Hadn't skated as like with regular skates on as a skater in years. Uh, but he was proud and determined he was going to make that team as a skater. So during the summer, he went and worked on this place called Blue Street Care, where they got one of those skating treadmills. They put a harness on you and you work on your stride and all that. And it wasn't me pushing him. I would drive him up there. I would sit out in the car uh, in the parking lot while he did it. But we'd drive up like half an hour to this place that three or four times a week and he would get on the skating treadmill, you know, throwing up, you know, pushing himself so hard and all that kind of stuff. So when he gets to the training camp, this is for a high school team. It's not a high-powered program or whatever. He just was bound to determine he was going to make it. And when he got there, he was, you know, he was a better skater. Still wasn't great. But the coaches saw what he had done, saw the story of how much he put into it. They just wanted him on the team for that work ethic. You know, he was, you know, he knew the game well and he could get around enough, but I really think it made, like, he now saw that, okay, again, I couldn't do this four months ago. I've done the four months worth of work. Now I can do it. And with his, and he's now known in his career, just got a fantastic new job, but it's the same kind of thing. People just throw him projects. If he doesn't know it, he'll just go figure it out. Like his bosses, you know, I I knew them from his old job and they'd call me one time. He goes, he's unbelievable. He's just we just throw him, throw him the work and he goes, we know it's going to get done, you know? So, yeah. and now that's just, it's not a big deal to him. That's just the way it is. But yeah, so. No, that's amazing. Um, boy, I mean, we start talking hockey and it just goes on forever. I haven't even talked about the agent yet, but I do have to ask one more question just about your career and then we'll get into the agent aspect. And that's Wayne Gretzky. How can I not ask a question about Wayne Gretzky? You get a chance to play with him and um, maybe not necessarily his prime, but I mean, he was still really, really, really damn good and had an aura about him and was already breaking all kinds of records. And now you're with him in LA. Like, do you have any, any, any takeaways from him, either as a leader or as a player or any great story that, that, you know, we could, we could hear about Wayne. Well, you know, like it's, uh, I think what really amazes me. So I think back now, I'm able to look back at my life and have a better perspective on things. You know, how I, how people perceive me, how, how I conducted myself and everything. He, he was doing it in the moment. Like, I think he was so self-aware. Uh, like I said, he dreamed of being the best player that ever played. He understood about how, he was getting compared to Gordy Howe, who was viewed as the best player that ever played. He understood how much impact he had on the game, the fans, the coaches, his teammates, uh, everything. He, he had such an understanding of who he was and his effect on the game. And he was a funny guy. Like, he was a great team guy, loved to sit with the guys and have a few beers, was the hardest worker at practice. Like, you know, you're talking about, you know, flying with the Eagles at night and well with the pigs in the morning. He lived like that. Like he would love being with the guys. Like he thought it was so important that the guys all got together in a team bonding thing. Uh, but he also understood that if we're going to go to practice the next day, I've got to make sure that I'm the hardest worker. And he was like, he just, he worked hard. Um, 
you know, he, he funny little story about Tom, and I, I tell this, uh, again, him, his understanding of everything around him and how he affected everybody. We went into Chicago for around the road, day before game. And, you know, we're, we're tired, we travel, but we're going to get on the ice for a little bit, so go for a quick little practice. Uh, we come back in, uh, you know, sweaty, and then we go to shower, go to the hotel, relax. And this young guy comes in the locker room with a camera crew, so he's this reporter. You can tell this is like he's probably in his early, or no, actually late 20s, uh, but, you know, the hair is all done, suits on, everything. He's going to now do an interview with Wayne Gretzky. This is a big moment in his life. He's all fired up, a little bit nervous, and the team's all around and everything. And he goes over to Wayne. He says, uh, Wayne, can we do the interview now? And Wayne uh, turns around and looks at him with this really, like, rude look, almost like, what are you talking about? I'm not doing an interview with you. And we're all looking like, Wayne never does this. That, that Wayne is so, like, always, we're always waiting for Wayne when he's doing interviews and signing autographs all the time. And the poor kid, you can just see that like, his jaw dropped. And it's like, oh, my God. Like, he probably told all his friends that he's doing this interview. Wayne waited. It, it seemed like two minutes, but he waited like 10, 15 seconds. He grabs the kid. He goes, I'm just kidding. Come on, get us over here and do this. And it was like, we were all like, we knew that he wasn't going to do it. But it was just funny. The poor kid was just like, oh, my God, thank God, you know. But it was just a sign where, like, he got the kid to relax. You know, he put his arm around the kid, made him feel good about it. But he treated him like he was part of the team, you know, joking around that locker room mentality. But that, and that's how he was with everybody. We had a uh, we had a funny, I won't get too long, you know, we've got to get the age and stuff. But we had a funny story. We were in Detroit one time playing. And Robbie Fatoric, who I mentioned before, was coaching. And he was very disciplined. He had this just general rule that if you lose your cool on the ice, break your stick of anger or something like that, you're going to sit on the bench. That was just a general rule. But we all knew there was rules for everybody else and there was rules for Wayne. And, and Wayne didn't abuse those rules and, and Wayne didn't create that rule, but that was just the kind of un, unwritten code in the NHL that, that Wayne's different than everybody else. It's just the way it is. Um, so we had a young goaltender, I mean, this Mark Fitzpatrick, he come up with the team, we're playing in Detroit, and he's got a shutout going on. It's the second period. I think we beat Detroit like 7 nothing, something like that. Wayne had tried some play at center ice, lost the puck. Uh, they went in and scored when the kids shut out. So Wayne was mad that he had ruined this young kid's shutout. So he comes, he goes, skates down by our net. He's apologizing to the kid. He skates behind the net, bangs his stick over the net, breaks, breaks his stick. So we don't think too much of it going into the locker room at the end of the second period. We're thinking, okay, yeah, Wayne's broken the rule, but he's not going to do it to Wayne. And we're fine with that. Then we understand that's the way it is. So we get in the locker room. And all of a sudden, we got a veteran team. Myself, Dave Taylor, Larry Robinson, all these older guys, Marty McSorley. The word starts going around the locker room that Robbie Fatorik is now going to bench Wayne Gretzky in the third period. And we're all thinking, like, part of us are like, <laughs> like it's hilarious. Like, Come on, Robbie, you're not going to bench Robbie. The other guys are like, some of the younger guys are like, what? You're like, you know, you're, you're, so you don't want to be involved in this. Like, you don't bench Wayne Gretzky. So we go on the ice, Wayne's sitting on the bench. You know, five minutes into the period, he's still on the bench. And finally, Mike Krushelinski, um uh, leans back to Robbie and says, Robbie, you've got to put him on the ice. So Robbie finally relents and puts him on the ice. After the game's done, uh, in the old Detroit arena, if you remember, there's this long hallway where all the visitors' locker rooms are, the home locker rooms down there. So Robbie, so Wayne takes Robbie into a locker room far away from our locker room, but he doesn't understand there's these cinder block um, walls, and the sound still permeates through these walls. So we hear Robbie, Wayne, and Wayne would never do this in front of a coach. He was totally respectful, but we hear him yelling, 20,000 people came to watch me play. They didn't come to watch you coach. And, uh, <laughs> and we were like, oh, my God. You know? And Robbie was a great guy. Guys respected him. He was so different than Wayne and the, the, the personalities and everything. It just was never going to match. 
and, and Wayne was trying to be so respectful. It was one of those things. It's like you're almost cringing, like, "Oh God, I can't unhear that." You know, it's. Uh, and, but that's yeah. It was one of a rare time that Wayne had displayed any anger toward the coach, and he tried his best to not do it in front of everybody else. That that's just the way he carried himself with everything. Right. No, that's an that's an amazing story. I love that. And, and while you were telling that story, and and I know that there was guys in the league or even spectators watching that there is this unwritten rule as you talk, talk that you, you couldn't hit Wayne in the NHL. And some people equated that while well, he always had like either McSorley or Semenko or somebody with him to protect him. Uh, one, do you, do you think that that was ever the case? And, and two, the second part of that is if Wayne Gretzky was a guy in your first training camp with his head down in the middle and he had all these records, would you have flattened him? Well, so I'll answer that one first. I think I would have because, because Phil was looked at as that level of player, you know, obviously, Wayne became more, but I, I still think I would have, but it would have been one of those, still one of those things after I'd done it, I was like, oh God, what did I do? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there was the rule that you were supposed to, I mean, first of all, we wanted to hit Wayne. He uh, wasn't that easy to hit. Like he really did, like he had that ability to really see the ice. Like he was, again, like I talk about his awareness of how, how he affected the game and everybody in it. He was the same way on the ice and just that awareness of everything around him. Like there were so many times where if a team had too many men on the ice for a brief period of time right in front of the bench, he'd shoot the puck right towards all their guys. And you're like, what is he doing? But he wanted the puck to go to them. Then the referee would have to call too many men in the ice. He's aware of that kind of stuff. Right. He would do it and you go, wow, that's pretty smart. Like, you know, after he would do it, you think, yeah, that's what I should do. But at the moment when you do it, you know, the game's going on. Um, so he was just so aware. But he, like, he also, like what he was so good at too, it wasn't just the fact that it was Marty McSorley there or Jay Miller that we had or Dave Semenko that they had in, in Edmonton. It's the way he uh, conducted himself with his teammates and didn't take advantage of the Marty McSorley's or the Dave Semenko's, but instead like incorporated them into everything with the game, like trying to get them on the power play and stuff. So they didn't feel like they were just meatheads out there to protect him. Like he was so like, and that's why I talked about that whole team thing with him was so important that he made those guys feel like that they were, uh, yeah, yes, they still had to go out there and do the toughest job in hockey and let's go beat each other's heads in. But uh, like he, he, it was really important to them that those guys were really revered and everybody. I watched the, some guy on TV, a former player covering a game years ago, and uh, the, somebody on the, one of the teams, I think it was Montreal, had, had gone out and started a fight. His team was down in the game, weren't playing well, and one of the top guys went out and started the fight. And the guy that they, the play-by-play then asked the color commentator, the former player, so does that work? And the player goes, no, nah, that never works. And I almost wanted to jump through the screen. I'm, I'm like, like, yeah, it doesn't work because you have that attitude. It's like we talked about that leadership before. And this is where Wayne was so good. When the tough guy goes out there and does his job, it's important. It's vitally important that those other guys on the bench, particularly the Wayne Gretzky, who will go out there and then they go, okay, we've been playing terrible here. This guy then has sacrificed himself to go and do this awful job. I now need to, I now need to show him that he has done his job. I need to recognize the effort he put into it and go out there and now play better because of what he's done. Uh, and that's what Wayne was like. He had that ability, you know, he had that leadership. He had that awareness of what was going on with the team and the game. Yeah. Everyone needs to feel important, right? Uh, on a team environment and, and the best of the best are usually the best at doing that. You I mean, letting these guys know that they're valued and they're, and they're appreciated. And I think that uh, one of the great crossovers there too, is like a hockey team to a family. 
You know, like everyone in the family needs to feel important and needs to feel appreciated and needs to feel like they're a part of things. And I think when we do those things well, we're, well, we've got that leadership that we're talking about, we're showing some good character. Let's, let's get into the agent thing. And I don't know what the best segue, but I, I will tell a story. You, you joked the other day when we were having a conversation that I, I was too smart to, to pick you uh, when you were, when you were uh, ringing my phone there at 17, but I was, you know, to, to break that down, I haven't talked about that anywhere, but I mean, the start of my, when I was a 16 year old in the WHL, I scored 36 goals with Spokane, which was the second most out of any underage in the CHL. I think uh, Jeff O'Neill was the only guy who, who had more goals than me. And, and going into that next year, I was, I was considered by many, either a top five or a top 10 draft pick. And then that year happened where, you know, there's, there's a whole Brian Maxwell scenario that I don't think we need to get into now that would be interesting to talk about at some point, but um, I was having a hard time getting on the ice. My dad was involved and Brian Maxwell didn't like my dad. And there was all this weird family stuff going on. I still don't know to this day really where it all fit in, but my, my own personal stats went down a little bit. I scored 29 in, in my draft year. And as that was going, and it was still at a time without internet, but I still knew that my stock was, kind of dropping, you know, and there was guys who had more question marks. And, and uh, so it was a tumultuous year to say the least for me, but still relatively successful. And, uh, and agents started to call, like now guys are getting agents at like 14, 15 years old. Like it's crazy to me. And, but I mean, I guess that's the way the world is. But at this time, like it was, you guys would call kind of the draft year, you know, you, you would call around and, and, and get your prospects. And, and I remember talking with you and always had like a real, I don't know. I just felt like a connection right to you. Like there was definitely something there that I really respected and I resonated with. Um, but then maybe unlucky for both of us, who knows? I like Mike Barnett called Wayne Gretzky's agent, right? Like yeah. Wayne Gretzky's agent wants to be my agent. And, and then when I tell that story now, it's like, that's all that he really almost had to do because it was just this big wide eyed thing that I'm going to be represented by the best player in hockey's agent. Right. And he wants me. And then he did the whole, like he used no knew how to use Wayne, right? Like he flew me to a, me and my dad to a game in Calgary when they were playing, uh, playing the Kings in the playoffs and, you know, brought me down and I got Wayne Gretzky's stick that's still on my wall. And I got to talk to him for 10 minutes. And like, it was like the coolest thing in the world. But at the end of the day, it was probably not the right decision, I would say, because he just was so big, you know, and, and he was a guy that I couldn't really talk to. He was a guy that I couldn't really access. And, uh, and you were just getting going and I would have been one of your guys, you know, and, and I needed someone to talk to and I needed that mentorship and that leadership. And, and I mean, that decision, I think, was pretty impactful to be honest you know and, and you never know at the time but I think it was now and now I get these questions from parents too like when do you do how do you decide and what do you do and um you know like how do you break that down like you like what do you think an agent's role is or I mean how, how do you maybe connect the dots in that story a bit well you know I, I think it's interesting uh, it depends on the player too in the situation like in your case because of the Brian Maxwell stuff and your father and all that was going on uh, it was kind of unique, right? And you needed somebody to be a little bit more hands-on. Not every player is like that. I've had some kids that almost feel like I'm not doing enough for them. I had Dallas Drake, uh, as a client of mine his whole career left, you know, he went to Northern Michigan and then had a great career. And there's a lot of times, honestly, where I felt like I call him up and say, Dallas, can I do something for you? Because he just, it just, it, for whatever reason, those things were not happening. You know, he, you know, his family situation was different and all that kind of stuff. So, um, so I, I really think it's, you, you, yes, you've got to look. And I, I understand why. And I actually came to work with Mike after a while at, at IMG. And we would, for four or five years, we were together. 
So we would go out recruiting and I could see just what you saw where the combination of me being a former player and now I had guys that were playing in the NHL. He's got Wayne Gretzky and all these other guys. We would walk in the living room sometimes and um, it sounds kind of terrible laughing right now, but he'd, he'd walk out laughing. He was like, you're shooting fish in a barrel, he would say, because, you know, you could tell the parents are like, wow, you know, these kids are good. This guy, these two guys want to represent my son. How can we not go with him? Um, and, you know, it's, it's easy now to step back and say to parents, like in your case, after the fact, well, yeah, you should have made a decision based more on what service was that guy going to be able to provide for you. But when parents are going through that and it's their kids, it's such a, you know, you're in awe of everything. You know, once you've gone through it once, you can make better decisions. But when you, you can tell, you know, when you're sitting there with those parents, they're just, you know, Bobby Orr is in the agent business now. I don't think he does as much of the work now, but he helps out recruiting. But it's the same thing for, especially kids around the Boston area. When Bobby Orr goes to sit in the living room, I've heard parents say this. How, how are you going to say no to Bobby Orr when you're, you've grown up in Boston or like, and not have him represent your son? Um, so it is tough. Uh, I, I do think... You know, it, I had Brian Burrard, who was the first overall pick in, what, 95, and ended up losing, finishing, losing his career. He lost his eye, played a little bit more and everything. Uh, he initially had gone with another agent uh, who ended up, they got into themselves some trouble, and they came back to me. And I remember the mother saying to me that uh, the grandmother that was at the first meeting I was at with the whole family said to him, you should go with that guy. I can tell he's got character. I, You know, it's, it's an easy thing to say now, but it's like that, it's that understanding that, uh, you, you know, things are going to happen and you need to know that that agent is going to be making the right decisions for you, is going to be telling you the right things. One of the reasons I got out of the agent business, not, not the only one, but I, I'm a big believer that if a player has a hard time with a coach, the player should walk in. And obviously it's tough when he's 14 years old, but if he's in junior hockey, he's 17, 18, 19 years old or pro, if he has a problem with the coach, he should walk into the coach's office, close the door. And even if those two scream and yell at each other, call each other nasty names, get it done one-on-one, -on -one. not the agent coming in, not the father or the mother coming in. I've talked to coaches about this so much. They hate it when somebody else comes in on behalf of that young player to have a confrontation with them. Let the player do it. Then the coach has so much more respect for him. He's going to look down the bench during the game. He goes, well, I, I like that. I didn't like what he said to me. I didn't like the situation, but he had the courage and the class to come in not in front of anybody else one-on-one -on -one, and have that meeting with me. So what happens now as because the agent business is so competitive, I was doing that with my players. Other agents would come along and say, why isn't Laidlaw going in there for you, uh, arguing for you? I'll go in there and argue for you because they know that now they're going to get that kid as a client because they're telling him what he wants to hear. The kid doesn't want to go through that. That's an uncomfortable situation as a 17 year old or an 18 year old. You don't want to do it, but that's what you should be doing. And now you've got this other person come along and saying, you don't have to do it, I'll do it for you. And that was starting to happen to me. And you know, you lose clients because of whatever. And I said, well, I'm not gonna sell myself out. That's wrong. I'm not doing the right thing for the player. If I really got in the agent business saying that I'm gonna do the right thing for the players, then I'm not doing that, I'm not letting it happen. But then you got to make the decision, okay, the you know, game's changing, uh, the competitiveness of the agents now, you know, you're not going to have much of a business left because all your clients are going to leave because the other agents tell them what they want to hear. So I, I still believe, I, you know, it's tough. It's tougher now too. Like I, I really believe with most players, they make themselves players or they don't make themselves players. There, there are those cases, like in your case, where other things were happening. Maybe things could have been done differently, but most times it's just the agent just needs to make sure that the player is taken care of, gets paid properly, has insurance, you know, if, you know, any questions about his any injuries or stuff leading into a draft year, those kinds of things. There's more importance, I think, once you're, 
you are a pro, you're a free agent. And now it's important for the agent to really know what the marketplace is, shopping around properly, all those things. But, but I still think it boils down to, and I, I don't know, I, I, some of the stuff I see from agents now, I don't, I don't know if I, how it happens, but I, I still think that character part of it is huge. You know, looking at somebody and really believing that they've got your best interest at heart. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and again, you don't know until you've been through it sometimes, but like, you know, you're talking about the business side versus the relationship side is what I'm hearing or picking up. And I yeah. think, you know, at the time I was, I was more interested in the business side and the ego side, right? Yeah. Because it was a bigger name and, you know, you know, made me feel better that this guy wanted me. But then at the end of the day, like I look at my, you know, my, my, my contract, like I don't, did it make any difference? Uh, no. You know what I mean? It didn't make any, did it make any difference when I scored 42 in the minors and came out and like was a holdout at camp and I didn't get any more money. I got less money, you know, like it's yet through all these parts where maybe I could have used like a phone call or maybe could have used some support and whatever, like now that wasn't there. Right. So that, that relationship side, I think, for me would have been more important. And then I'm, I'm, I was also sort of questioning, well, how much relevance is it to the business side? And like, what do you, I mean, you were an agent and there has to be value there. Like what, what do you think the value is on the business side now with the CBA and like the, you know, the players association, all these contracts and everybody knows everybody's numbers. And you know, it's like how much money can extra, can you really get a guy or what do you think the services that agents provide? Yeah, I don't think you get any extra money really. I, I think again, listen, I, I should be careful. When I say that when a player is a free agent, um, uh, there's a lot of things that go into that. So it's the timing. Okay. How long of a contract do I sign when I'm a young player trying to get to the point where I'm at my max ability as a player. I'm now I'm 26 years old. I'm playing my best hockey. That's when I want my contract to expire. All right. So those kinds of things, the timing throughout your career, then how long of a contract do I sign after that? Like just some people believe like Connor McDavid's contract, you know, at eight years, you know, he's going to look back and regret that contract. Oh, it's great money. You know, if, salary, if the uh, salary cap continues to rise and his ability to make more, maybe he's left money on the table. It's hard to say that when you've got that big of a contract. But, you know, those kinds of issues come up, and I think they're, they're important to look at. Um, the value that a player has is based on what he does on the ice. And it's the agent's job to capitalize on that value. But he doesn't. the agent doesn't create that value. It's the player that creates the value. So... There's some players now in the National Hockey League that are representing themselves. I was watching, the, the, I can't remember who it was, and some player had negotiated his own contract. It was a big contract, too. Um, with the Players Association now, and like you said, with salary disclosure, you think back, it's funny you talk about salary disclosure. Uh, when I played, I remember like back in 1986, way back in, when Alan Eagleson was running the Players Association, we had a huge argument about whether we should have salary disclosure. And finally, I think in... Uh, to, uh, 1992 or something like that, they finally said, okay, we're having salary disclosure. And, and, and now all of a sudden, sky, the, the salaries just skyrocketed because everybody else knew what everybody else was making. So it's almost you know, it's funny that we look back and say, well, why were we arguing about this before? What was the big right. deal? We didn't know our own uh, contracts. But I, again, to, to me, to sum it up, the player creates his value by what he does on the ice. Is there a range there, high, low, what you should get? Uh, based on the agent's performance, yes. Uh, but again, some of it's timing. There's been times I had as an agent career where I had goaltenders uh, that were going to hit the open market. And then all of a sudden, it was a year when um, 
it was Philadelphia and I think Chicago had gone to the finals, I think, and, and Chicago won. It was when Patrick Kane scored in overtime to win. And they basically had two backup goaltenders, uh, for, like a backup goaltender for each team. They was Leighton for Philadelphia and whoever it was for Chicago. They weren't like these starting goaltenders. So now everybody else in the league is like, well, we don't need to go spend all this money on big-time goaltenders. And it was the year that I had that, I won't mention his name, but a big-time goaltender going to hit the market. We thought we're going to cash in. It's going to be a huge deal. There's no market there anymore because everybody decided they didn't need to go after a big-time goaltender. So those things sometimes happen. Um, right. But, yeah, I, I just – I hate to say it being a former, I was an agent for 22 years, but I think if a player is smart now and has somebody behind them to help them guide along the way, you know, sit and talk to, they can do the, do the contracts themselves. Right. Yeah. I mean, you're protected in so many ways. And I, I was tell that story. I mean, just for my own personal relevance and, and like my experience, I mean, having, having IMG and Mike Barnett, this big, you know, this big powerhouse agency and with a big name, I got traded from Toronto to LA at the deadline uh, it was Yannick Perot for me, and uh, that was like my best year statistically uh, on the stat line. I think it was 22 or 23, and I was leading the AHL in goals. I had 42 in uh, 68 games or something when I got traded, scored five more in the IHL. And just to tell pe- people who are listening how this world works, I had a, I had a one-way deletion clause if I played 40 games in the, in the NHL in my entry deal, right? right? So my entry draft deal. So they traded me for me uh, to LA. They left me in the minors until there was just enough games left that I would end up at 39 games, right? Not 40. So that was still like, to me, that's like crazy. And this like big money game, but like they, they make decisions based off that kind of stuff. So that was once so they left me down. I scored five more goals in, in the minors, which put me at 47 for the year, 22 years old, came up, was, I mean, I know it was like eight games or whatever, successful enough. And then came and then it was my contract was done. So I had to renegotiate my contract. My first contract had a, had a whatever that's called like a you know my base salary was whatever but I couldn't make more than a minimum of 125 or 150 or something so it was a it was a good entry league contract but they were offering me now 50 in the minors after this year that I had and they just traded for me they were going to give me 50 if I made the NHL squad so I ended up holding out that year for minor league money like it wasn't even for NHL money it was like just like what happens if I don't make the team kind of scenario and I ended up getting like 75 so I actually took a $50,000 pay cut for scoring 50 goals essentially like it was crazy and so just the reason I'm telling that story is like agents it, it's not it's not the agent couldn't do anything for me right it would, even my stats couldn't necessarily do anything for me I had no leverage I couldn't do anything I had to sign and I signed and they took advantage of the scenario and again, to get back to it, what would have been better is to have somebody there, a relationship-based agent that I could talk to, that could deal with what's going on at camp, that could deal with maybe, you know, my struggles and why am I not in the NHL and there's a phone number there to call. So I think that there's, if I was to give anyone any type of advice when it comes to that, I'm like, pick the guy that you want to talk to. And a guy that's going to tell you stuff that you may not want to hear too. Like oh, sure. Be, right? I mean, you know this, but it can't just be saying all the great things. I had a guy... I should be careful. I don't want to be names, but a guy got in trouble with uh, uh, doing some steroids one time. And uh, so I talked to the doctors and everything, talked to him and there's no question he'd done it. So what do you do now? You know, and it was at a time before he was trying to for an Olympic team. It came up in the Olympic testing. It wasn't the NHL didn't have testing at the time. So he really broke no NHL rules. He didn't do anything wrong as far as NHL is concerned, but obviously he's in the NHL. So the, the team wants to have a press conference. Uh, you know, they can't just let it slide. And I told him, I said, listen, you did it. There's no excuses. It's not somebody else's fault. Nobody else told you to do it. There's no hiding this. There's no, you know, like taking out of context kind of mentality. 
just stand up and say, listen, I did it. I was wrong and I'm, it won't happen again. And I want to do everything I can to show kids that shouldn't be doing it. And then it's all over with. Like it, it's, I can't remember who gave me the analogy. It's like, you know, a little kid goes in and steals a candy bar out of the grocery store. You know, the worst thing the parents can do is try to come up with some excuse. You take the kid back to the grocery store and you go to the manager and say, and you get the kid to say, listen, son, uh, sir, I'm sorry. I stole the candy bar. Here it is back. What's the guy going to do at that point? I mean, he's, he's given the candy bar back. So it's the same thing here. You made the mistake, acknowledge you made the mistake, apologize for it, make no excuses to anybody. Then, then it's over with. It was done. And it's the same thing happened in that case. It, it wasn't even a story. The, the Players Association wanted to have some big, uh, you know, they wanted me to go in there and go on some campaign or whatever. I said, no, we're not making this into a bigger deal. He screwed up. He's going to acknowledge a mistake and that's it. And it died after that. It wasn't like I came up with some magic pill out to solve the problem. It's, you know, I would invent right. that theory, but that's, I think that's one of the biggest things is like, it's, is that, you know, is that tough love a little bit? Like, okay, if this guy really cares about me, he's going to tell me what I, what I want to hear. But I had times with clients too, where, uh, you know, they would get associated with people like, you know, financial planners and stuff like that, that I thought were just scumbags. And I would tell them, and we'd have, we'd have battles over it. You know, you run the risk of losing clients, but you know, when it's all said and done, they can look at you and go, well, I guess this guy really believed in what was right for me. Right. Yeah. I mean, you got to stand for something, right? And yeah. when you, when you have, and that's the thing with you, Tom, and I think, and there's other guys out there like that, but when you're putting the person first, right. And it's not, it's not about whether he's going to, you know, sign on with me again or whether, I mean, you're prepared to maybe have guys go to do the right thing. And I think that's, uh, you know, that goes a long way and maybe it's not going to be for everybody, but the guys you have are going to really love you and they're going to appreciate that. And I've, had time, and I've had times during the recruiting process where you're really honest with somebody and some other agent will come along and offer them something. They'll get all wowed by it. In your case. And then later on, like halfway through their career, they come back to you and say, listen, I should have gone with you. I'm firing my other agent. You're my, my you're my agent now. Right. It, it has happened like that too. You know, and you just, conduct, and I've learned too that, um, like, especially like for me, when I first got in the agent business, I just had quit being an NHL hockey player. When you're an NHL player, everybody's telling you how great you are. Yes, Mr. Laidlaw. Yes, Tom. Yes, yes, yes. You can have all this stuff. Now all of a sudden, like in your case, you go out there and you're talking to these parents. I have no experience being an agent. Yes, I was a former NHL player. I was a captain and everything. And I wanted to represent the son. So most of the times to start with, I was getting people saying no to me. And I was like, I remember the first start having like, what, you're saying no to me? Nobody says no to me. I'm an NHL hockey player, you know? Um, but then you come to realize, you know, it's, you know, it's a, just get started and you got to keep pounding away. And again, that's where it goes back to me where another situation where I was so lucky the way I was raised. It's just, even though I didn't like being told no, I just didn't, okay, I've, I've got a family to feed. I got a business to build. I didn't, I wasn't making enough money that we banked millions of dollars. I have to, I have to pay bills. So I need to get this business to work. And I don't care if somebody's saying no, I just got to keep on going. Right. Yeah, I know that and it works in anything, like we already said, right? To, to keep rolling and to figure it out as you go. Cause that's the other thing is, you know, the more you try and the more consistent you are with it, you are going to get better. You're going to get better at the delivery. You're going to get better at what you need to say and how you're going to need to say it and, and um, get better at your craft. So no, that's great. I mean, we're, we're, uh, we're pushing on to the time here. It's been amazing, amazing chatting with you. It's just the way the heck that happens. I, I, I really love doing these interviews cause it's so yeah. awesome. You just get on the phone and you just start uh, talking about good stuff. And I know there's a lot of stuff here that, that, uh, you know, my listeners are going to be able to take and, and the kids uh, that want to get somewhere are going to be able to listen to. And, and there's some old schoolness to you, but I think old school is becoming new school now and it's going to be more relevant than ever because a lot of these things that we've talked about, uh, 
just that they're not in schools anymore and they're kind of not necessarily in sports and they're not, you know, they're not talked about enough. And I think there's a massive advantage for the guys that put character first and put, put the process first. You're going to, you're going to find a way to get to the top. I, I really believe that more than ever now. And you're doing a fantastic job too. Like we've talked about all along here, you know, I think at all times, but especially with kids there who are very impressionable there, they've seen this guy that, you know, is a former professional hockey player, has been through it all now and he's talking about the character stuff the way you're, you're doing with these kids and how it's going to make you a better player and a better person along the way so i think it's huge that you're doing that with these kids no oh, well, thanks so much and i had an interesting conversation with brian mccabe the other day who might be coming on as a guest and and uh yeah he's saying it's a player development role like that's a lot of what he's doing now is a lot of off-ice stuff that be you know these kids are really you know adversity intolerant you know that they, they they don't really know how to deal with stuff they don't really know how to how to handle themselves away from the rink because they've kind of had their hand held through a lot of these things and things like preparation and things like dedication and commitment that even at that level you know is 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 becoming you know kind of harder to find so uh so the message like your message my message you know me me working with these guys and and uh you inspiring others i i think it's i think it's relevant i think it's important and uh and you know, in whatever, it's it's something that uh, that we can get behind and feel good about. So, again, I'm happy to I'm happy to do it. Absolutely. Awesome, well, Tom. You've been an amazing guest. I know everyone's going to love your stories. Uh, I know I do. Every time we get on the phone, it's great. So, thanks for spending some time with me today. And uh, you know, the other thing touch, I like to comment sure. too. You know, we've got that the dome going up on top there. I tell everybody. That- <laughs> I tell everybody, grass does not grow on a busy street, so that's why there's nothing up top there anymore. Oh, there we go. I got to use that one. I like it. Perfect. All right, man. Well, thanks so much. Have a great one. We'll talk to you later. Take care. Cheers. Thank you so much for being with us today. I really enjoyed that conversation with Tom. My goodness, man, 61 years old, in the best shape of his life, and he's getting up at 3.30 in the morning to get a little better every day, to do the hard things to make to make himself better. And when you take that aspect of what he was talking about, impart that into what he did as a hockey player, what he did as an agent, now what he's doing as an alumni to help others and to motivate others, uh, and he does it in such an engaging way, such an entertaining way, it's, it's impossible not to want to continue that conversation. So I felt like we could have talked for five, six hours. I think we got on close to two there. So thanks for, for sticking with us. But for me, it was easy. I'm sure it was easy for you guys as well. Tom is such an easy guy to listen to, and he has so many great stories. And now when we can impart that to our athletes, if, if, we're, if we're adults and we have kids that want to be players, or if you are a player yourself, just take a little bit and piece from Tom and impart that in your own lives to make you a better version of yourself. And that's what this is all about. This podcast is all about is getting better, being able to realize your dreams, being able to improve and what it takes to improve and what it takes to feel good about ourselves and to gain confidence and to understand the virtues of the process. And, uh, and I think Tom exemplifies that as well as anyone I've had on this podcast. And it was a pleasure to interview him. So until next time, what you can do for me is to support the podcast, to keep getting the word out there, to keep letting everybody know that, you know, this is a good thing and there's good conversations and there's value out there. And I'll keep doing what I do is find great guests and hopefully ask the right questions to get some good value out of there. So until next time, remember, it's better to be prepared and not have an opportunity than to have an opportunity and not be prepared. Play hard, everybody.